All right, so I'm a little bit slow. I apologize if anybody was out there waiting. Doesn't look like anybody was, but I'd hope to get this on at 8.30 and I'm a little late. It always takes me a little bit longer to uh, get things started. Um, but yeah, so I have, I'm just gonna spend some time tonight. I'm gonna follow up a little bit on uh, an interview that Lynn and I did. Uh, <clears throat> it was mostly done for her podcast, which goes out in a different format, uh, but it's just a half an hour show. And so I was trying to distill down into half an hour this idea about um, like remote robotics and blockchain credentialing and digital identity and the future of work. And it relates a lot to um, some work that I've been doing uh, reading uh, this John Holland book, uh, Signals and Boundaries, about complexity theory and teaming and sort of modular um, organization. And you know, <clears throat> I think it's gonna be sort of the planned future of this collective consciousness. So this has been on my mind, and then today I get in the mail, I get the <clears throat> pen, Arts and Sciences Magazine, Omnia, and you know, what do they have on the cover? It's the physics of us. Physicists are studying how living matter works and finding that it breaks rules and provides fascinating models. And so, um, oh look, for all my friends who are about the trees, there's stuff about trees. So there's all sorts of stuff that's in here about physics of living matter and I'm sure how they imagine that they're going to adjust it for this human plus or nature nature 2.0 world in the name of sustainability and poverty alleviation. So um, before I get started, I have I put together a, um, a playlist of 20 clips. Now, I don't think we're going to get through them all tonight, but I thought I would start to go through them. This sort of lays out how I understand um, what's coming with this um, future of remote work and really to try to get people to think about um, sort of their positionality within the resistance space. Um, because a lot of things that are being posed as your freedom to choose um, and to step outside maybe government mandated institutions of you know healthcare or schooling or training um, into those things that are your choice. And my contention is that what's coming is that um, what they're trying to do is to sort of break us all up into like agents for their simulation and to organize us through these sort of signals and boundaries. And the signals are going to be the tokens and the tokenomics um, that are really far more than just crypto. As I've, I've said in my little blog post, I feel like I really wish we were paying a lot more attention to the tokenized governance than just the financial side of things with the crypto. And because that's what the blockchain is. The blockchain is how we navigate a sensor-based environment, um, the nature 2.0 that's coming in the built environment 2.0, the smart environments. So uh, somebody just mentioned to me, like I just saw it online today. Uh, let's see, this goes. Uh, this, is, this is one of my old maps, my Sega map. Um, but it, it jumped out at me that this FDIC has set up what's called a emission-driven bank. I guess it was started last year. And it was initiated by Microsoft and Truist. 
Now, and I haven't heard of Truist actually, but I guess it used to be BB&T Bank and evidently is the 10th largest bank in the country, in the US, and like the seventh largest insurer in the world. So I've never heard of Truist before, but clearly it's a major player with Microsoft. Microsoft is setting up their you know, planetary computer program. And, and Truist is actually in Charlotte, and that's my, my family's in, in Charlotte. And I always think of that as you know, sort of Bank of America territory, but evidently there's, there's more banks. Um, so Microsoft Truist and then also Warner Brothers Discovery, which evidently is a merger that just happened last year that the, the Warner has had so many like AOL Time Warner, you know, all of these, but it's, it's digital media. And as we're, we're, we go through and we talk about the future of work and the future of learning, much of it involves interacting with online content and, and for these devices that we're talking to, to um, capture our emotion and our levels of engagement, maybe to have some wearable that's tracking our you know galvanic skin monitoring or our pupils dilating or our blood flow and to sort of track us against the content that's being delivered to us as a playlist. And this is for this lifelong learning on blockchain. So it's not a big shocker, um, the, the Warner Brothers discovery. Um, that they're working, like that they're involved in this this banking system. Um, I guess what came out in the news today that uh, Microsoft and Truist had chosen uh, fund managers for this, uh, one of which is Elizabeth Park Capital Management. And I looked them up and shocker, they're in Metro Cleveland. And of course, you know, if you sort of follow a lot of us who do this work, uh, the Cleveland is sort of the center for Standard Oil and the Rockefeller roots go straight back to Cleveland. Uh, the other manager was Calvert Funds, uh, which is based in Bethesda, Maryland. And, you know, if I have a couple of site visits uh, that I did this August in the Bethesda area, which was uh, the, the Howard Hughes uh, Memorial Institute, which is biomedical research. And it's just a stone's throw from um, Walter Reed and uh, the NIH. And again, not very far, just, you know, across a bit across the beltway is uh, the, the Washington Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So there's a lot going on in Bethesda. And I added this to my map today because I actually already had a Calvert Social Investment Fund. Now there are many Calvert funds. I, you know, I need to spend some time looking up Calverts. Um, I think that they're sort of an old Maryland name, sort of colonial era name, but the, their funds go back to 1976. They have a history, a long history in um, social investment. I think this is their timeline. So they're saying that they were founded in 76 and in 1982, they were launching a, um, a balanced portfolio and working in ESG investing as early as 1992. So that's super early. Um, and Evidently, they said they lost the launched the first ESG portfolio bond in 1987. So I really had no clue that Calvert went back that far in the social impact space. But then, according to their corporate timeline, you know it shows here being part of the UN Global Compact in 2001, um, and the UNEP in 2003, um, and then they're working in green bonds and in carbon trading. So um, it's I guess it's not a surprise that uh, with Microsoft's planetary computer work that they would be uh, going in into the space and joining with Calvert being one of the two fund managers. But what I had actually had Calvert on initially was a social investment fund uh, that dated to 1995. And there were two individuals that were associated with this fund. Uh, the, the primary one was Jeffrey Stamps. 
And Jeffrey Stamps was a consultant in essentially this idea of networked organizations. Uh, he and his wife Jessica Lipnack, they're both on the they were both on the advisory council for Calvert Social Investment in the mid 90s, and they had funded something called NetAge Consulting, which was really about early networking. Right, this is the early ages of um, uh, networked analysis. And, and Jeffrey Stamps had done postgraduate work in humanistic psychology uh, at Saybrook University, which is in the uh, San Francisco area, and then I think they also have a division in Pasadena. And he was involved in the development of later this idea of virtual team software. So this is very, very, very early um, on, on the idea of virtual teaming. But now, like, you know, so many people out there who are doing remote work, we're doing it through teams, right? And so we don't necessarily think about teams in the, in the same way that this is part of this complex systems management, but it is, I believe, um, because the, the plan is, is to develop global teaming um, to craft like custom teams for modular developments, like modular projects that they hope that they can sort of collect enough information on quality teams to sort of build out their singularity project because in all of the virtual teaming, they're collecting all the data as well. And it's interesting, so he his dissertation was called Holonomy, A Human Systems Theory, and that, he wrote that in 1980. So that's pretty early, and then a while ago, and this has been, um, let me just see, this is, yeah, so this is Jeffrey Stamps. It's kind of got the yin-yang thing going on, but with some swirly parts, maybe a little infinity, and it's, it, it became part of the systems inquiry theory, uh, series. And uh, the series editors were Bella Benathy and George Clear, both of whom were are prominent in the systems engineering space. And I believe that um, the foreword to this book was written by, uh, yeah, Kenneth Boulding. Now, Kenneth Boulding sort of wrote this early book about uh, spaceship Earth, that Earth is like a spaceship. And of course, that's part of the cybernetic systems planning. Uh, Bolding was a Quaker. He was an economic theorist. He promoted this idea of homeostasis, which is something I've talked often about with Irvin Laszlo. Uh, he was influenced by Henry George, the the Georgism principles, and uh, uh, he he actually had sort of developed this idea of economics as a moral science, which was in keeping with sort of again this. Um, Quakernomics, like the good kind of capitalist. And so he was very early in that in that phase. And his wife, Elise, uh, they eventually ended up in Boulder, but her focus was always about, uh, she was a peace activist. And so again, in, she was a sociologist working in the peace movement space, but peace as a, a definitely a planned movement um, tied in with uh, the United Nations and the American Friends Service Committee and UNESCO. So you've got sort of the homeostasis, you have the peace, you have the moral economy. Uh, let me see down here. Yeah, he wrote The Economics of the Coming Spaceship Earth in 1966. So K Kenneth Boulding wrote the introduction to uh, Jeffrey Stamp's book about Holon architecture. And again, early on, um, Steffers and Sebs and some of us were talking about sort of, again, this Holon-based system. And I know Sebs has done a number of pieces around um, Arthur Kostler um, and um, Holonomy and this ghost in the machine and sort of uh, simulated behavior systems. Um, so I, 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 anyway, so that's 
I'm thinking about, we've, we've got the Calvert stuff, and this is what sort of triggered me today because I'm thinking about the teaming, I'm thinking about peace, homeostasis, this idea of like engineering us towards post-humanism, all of which is I sort of have in my, I have a, a little um, note section on this other map that I've been thinking out loud, and I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't have time tonight to go into it. I'm gonna do it in, a, in another one, but I'm, I'm just gonna touch on it. Um, because I think it's useful in thinking about what's going to be coming next. Um, I'd started out with this idea from the Global Education Futures Forum map, which was from Pablo Lecce of the people there. And so as we talk about the future of work, I think it's really important to understand that this document essentially was laying out the future of education and not just public education, all of education from like 2017 to 2037. And so Along that continuum, they were imagining that at some point that the billionaires would have fortunes that were made up of people. And I think I think that's important to keep in mind is that the people near part and that within the education space, this is also on this uh, mapped document from Global Education Futures uh, that they were talking about uh, electronic tutors, uh, online and virtual gaming being used to help solve tasks. Uh, having um, an education D GPS, uh, uh, an education advisor service, which would very likely be an AI, uh, that you would have a precedent-based diploma, that they would monitor you and record your performance and behavior and then give you credits based on what they can see in the panopticon, uh, that individuals would have branded trajectories that were, they, they frame it as personalized, but I think in many ways this could also count as eugenics. Uh, they talk about talent hunts, that there would be business tracking talented students and offering them financing and incentivization for their education, and that those would be a commodity. And this is very important as we start to talk about um, uh, the income sharing agreements on blockchain. And, and, and then the fact that in this idea of improving human capital and developing your teams, especially global teams, because I think within the these you know global grand challenges that they imagine, right, of like solving the climate crisis or getting everyone out of poverty, they, they want a global perspective. And actually, if they can put devices and monitoring systems into the hands of people who are currently disconnected from this Web3 metaverse, um, they, they have a lot of potential to make a lot of money and get a lot of data that they haven't had before. And so that's why they're really working really, really hard to sort of quote unquote leapfrog the global South, Latin America, Africa, India, into this new digital economy, this new knowledge-based learning economy. So where you see in this, this diagram, it says gerbil on a treadmill, helping socially marginalized people to self-actualize by involving them in alternative reality games. Right. And so the, the the future is going to be a gaming environment and and they really are targeting marginalized people. Right. They say it themselves, socially marginalized people. So, you know, in the global north, that'll look like people who are poor. Right. Who need public assistance. Those will look like people with chronic illness. Those will look like people with mental health issues, people who were formerly incarcerated, foster youth, um, people who have been trafficked, uh, immigrants, refugees. Those are all the people who are even in the, the global north who would be attractive for these human capital investment 
programs. And again, they're going to manage you within their alternative reality, extended reality game, right? They'll, they'll, they will invite you in to the, um, the outside in robot to help you be your best self, right? To help you self-actualize. Um, so I think this is a really important background for all of this. And this is where I came in, again, in my education space, initially not knowing any of these other things and then being like, I just can't even imagine what you're talking about. And now, you know, five years later, seeing how much ground and how normalized we've made this. And I think many of these aspects, right? Like a gamified education, personalized learning, having people invest in you. Like there's a lot of people who maybe I might identify as like wanting to get out of the mainstream who might think that those are great plans, but they're not realizing that fundamentally all of this infrastructure has been built by, by the global finance defense machine. <laughs> you know, it, this is not a kind and gentler future. This is just a different version, a different flavor, and it's built by the same people. Because again, as we've got Cleveland, um, you know, in the other capital program. So um, it, I talk a little bit about like the fact that the, the gaming that's coming is based in the Cold War. Is uh, this, this goes back to Stan Ulam and uh, George Cowan, uh, uh, George, I thought it was, that says George Dyson. I thought it was Cowan, um, who at the Santa Fe Institute, but this idea of Los Alamos, the poker games, uh, the poker games going on in the Cold War, and this idea of the Monte Carlo method of going through a lot of different uh, decision tree alternatives to look and find the best choice. And that's what's going to be done over and over and over and over again with these simulations that are coming is the gamification of everything. Um, many of the game theoretics like the are still being used today in the uh, design of these token economies so that's important to know you'll see a lot of when they're talking about setting up governance systems for these decentralized autonomous organizations and these tokens issuances there are a lot of talks about the prisoner's dilemma so again the cold war incubating this new gamified space and then also the, the legacy of the Cold War and the, the nuclear testing and the fallout um, and also the trauma-based mind control of that, um, that, you know, we're moving us towards uh, synthetic biology, right? Uh, the, the radioactive isotopes uh, and the testing around uh, radiation exposure that came out of the Cold War is segueing now into some of these Human Plus programs. And then we, we've talked about the, the idea of the homeostat. I've, I've shown this image quite often. This is Irvin Laszlo, the systems theorist. And he's talking, this is from a, a lecture to the Baha'i in the 80s, uh, that he would, wanted to set up a world homeostat system. And that really is what Web3 is. It is going to be sensors and actuators that affect behavior and life on the planet. So um, so that's Laszlo again. And he's calling this, this is, this is our path Path, again, that's cybernetics, the pathway, the governance system, follow the path to peace in a global society. And peace in a global society is run on deontic logic of these smart contracts. And, you know, again, 30 years down the road, we, we have a lot more sophistication. Uh, it's, it's built on work that was done around Howard Odom. This is what uh, Jason and Leo and I did that three-part series about atomic ecology, uh, about, again, the, the biophysics and uh, Oak Ridge National Labs and the origins of the environmental movement in uh, the Atomic Energy Commission, which nobody understands, and the fact that 
really it, throughout the Cold War era, people were trained to understand the environment as, um, as a, an electronic system, as a metabolic system. And in fact, like this book itself, Holland's book, talks a lot about like the rainforest and niches being um, almost like circuits uh, and, and their models. So Howard Odom was the, the, the guy who developed this idea of energy or energy transfer uh, both in the metabolic systems of environmental niches and also he, his specialty was around water. Uh, so that was Odom. And then now you've got, uh, this is a paper I shared with Leo and Jason recently, and I'm really hoping that we can deconstruct it in the new year. It's from June of 2020 by Pat Rawson of Curve Labs. And I believe Curve Labs is based as much as any of these cloud-based things are based in any real place in like Berlin. And it was affiliated with uh, that game that Leo and I talked about on the Silicon Icarus podcast, the, the 51 Degrees, I guess, about um, like having parks and children like using phones and going in and do ritual gaming with sigils and oracles like in the parks as as part of their connection to nature. So Curve Labs is up to a lot of different things. Some of them are quite esoteric. and um, But Pat Rawson, this is quite an intense paper. Uh, it's it's part two of a three-part series, and they're, they're essentially talking about um, like thermoeconomics and money based on biological function and embedding money in the environment uh, in the name of sustainability and degrowth. And so again, like there's a lot of issues with these central banks, like just printing out all kinds of money. But then there's also other issues where you start to have a Web3 smart contract layer with interactive cartography and real-time monitoring from satellite, you know, from space, uh, where your money is embedded in your relationship to the local environment. And and that's what's coming. But that, that really is drawing on these earlier models of Howard Odom's uh, work on uh, energy uh, and the, the total cost of production, uh, including the cost to develop natural resources and dispose of them later. So yeah, so these ecological state protocols, it's all the biophysics, modeling everything as energy. And, and this early, uh, here I have a little bit more from Odom about the energy. Uh, let's see, what do they call it? Um, uh, the energy of a log um, is the available energy that was used up in past transformations, which were required to create the available energy in the log. So this is all about ongoing accounting, which is what the blockchain will do, is energy accounting, which is also along the lines of technocracy. But I think the people who like claim to just one single label and say, it's technocracy, um, kind of miss the mark. But in that, the energetic accounting is sort of a, a technocratic um, approach. And that's something that's very well suited to the blockchain itself. And it's talking about energy uh, or helping with system self-organization, which is really what the token economies are. It's about signaling and organization. And, and crazy as it is, all, a lot of this work is actually built, it's over 100 years old. This guy, Frederick Soddy, and I need to spend a little bit more time with his work. He has quite a number of publications on archive.org that have been uploaded. They're old, they're from the 20s and 30s. And um, he was actually, his, his background was in uh, 
science, actually, uh, radiation, <laughs> chemistry and radiation. Uh, this, this book, The Chemistry of Radio Elements, part two, The Radio Elements and the Periodic Law, uh, this was published in 1914. But then in his later life, he decided to apply sort of the physics and the chemistry aspects to economic thought. And he developed a number of papers, including here, this one from 34 is called The Role of Money. Uh, and this was an essay from 1921 on Cartesian economics. And I might just take a minute since I've already dived into this, but and read this this bit out. It says, um, so this is Frederick Soddy, the uh, scientist slash economist. The laws of energy under which men live furnish an intellectual foundation for sociology and economics and make crystal clear some of the chief causes of failure, not only of our own, but I think also of every preceding great civilization. They do not give the whole truth, but insofar as they are correct to physics and chemistry, they cannot be possibly false. I think with but a little amplification and modification, they might furnish a common scientific starting point from which all men concerned with the public rather than their own private interests might start to rebuild the world more in conformity with the great intellectual achievements which have distinguished the present age. The first step towards such a scientific utopia would be the due delimitation of the rights of the community's creditors, the curbing of the demon of debt, which masquerades among the ignorant as wealth. So he's very much against sort of the, the interest, um, which definitely huge problems with the interest. But what he's talking about is this scientific utopia, which is what's coming within um, the tokenomic sphere that, that we, we see with um, uh, this, uh, uh, sorry, this, uh, the, the curve labs, approach to uh, cryptospheric ecotechnics, right? It's, it's, it's using, applying the science and integrating nature into the science and bringing them together into the monetary system, which is what we're gonna be seeing with the ESG investing. Now, I'm just gonna run this quick. This is a, a little clip that I hadn't meant to, to play, but I think it, it's relevant in terms of the energy and systems engineering framework. And this is the tail end of a talk that was uh, done by uh, Shruti Apia, and I think Leo had introduced me to her early on. She has quite a resume. She's involved in many, many things, including, I think, most recently, Input Output Hong Kong, which is the Cardano-related Cardano um, company. Uh, but she spent a, a good bit of time at the Santa Fe Institute on systems engineering and modeling of artificially intelligent economies. And so this is about a half an hour talk. This is just the last few minutes. Uh, she's talking about agents and reinforcement learning and the future of money as computing power. So let me just pull this up. So um, how do we study this? This is all, it sounds very scary because it's something that we don't understand. It is not conceivable by humans, right? So how do we actually understand it? So this is conventional reinforcement learning where you just have uh, an agent which is affected by the environment and the environment basically sends feedback loops to, back to the agent and the agent performs actions that change the environment, right? And this is just a normal Q learning function where Q, is, Q represents the reward that an agent would get when they make a particular action, 
right? You can study this using not just agent-based simulations, but these special agent-based simulations, which are called multi-agent reinforcement learning simulations, because you would want these agents to be considered as little humans on a computer, right? So how do you create little humans on a computer? You need some sort of learning there. So that's why we use multi-agent reinforcement learning. And with this, it's, it's a step away from just traditional agent-based simulations. By the way, traditional agent-based simulations is how I first started back in 2016. And I moved on to doing multi-agent reinforcement learning because you, you can have heterogeneous objectives and also increasing complexity in any model in a traditional agent-based model will actually lead to overfitting. As you might be aware, overfitting is such a great concern in any kind of machine learning problem, and that also happens with agent-based simulations. So, so you can actually use multi-agent reinforcement learning because that way you don't actually have to hard code the, the agent's action into the program. The agents just choose whatever they want to do, and they will evolve over time, get more intelligent over time by learning from their environment. So, so this is um, basically a, um, a, an iterated presence dilemma game. It is a normal agent-based simulation. You can see that the incentive for, um, incentive for any player to defect when they have been defected, when they have defected previously is 1.71 times total cooperators. So red represents defect while the previous move was also defect. So eventually everyone ends up defecting. But if you actually decrease it a little bit, you can learn that there is a stable-ish state, like a global kind of stability that arises when you have more, like a smaller number associated with the incentive to defect. But if you have something that's close to one, you can see that everybody tends to cooperate. So cooperate is represented by blue, so you can see that everybody tends to cooperate when its um, incentive to defect is almost neutral. Right, so now um, this actually changes the meaning of money because if you have many AI agents that are interacting on a system making game warps on each other, now this actually makes it such that the agent that is able to make or compute or solve for the most optimal strategy is the agent that is able to um, get the highest utility out of the system, right? So that who is able to complete the most um, uh, optimal strategy? The one with the most computational power. So computational power will be akin to money in such kinds of systems. And it's rather inevitable that they actually come up with human inconceivable strategies because the example that I showed you is just one way games can be warped. There can be n numbers ways in which games can be warped, not just between two players, but between n players in a multi-scale multi, um, system, right? So you can imagine what kind of strategies and what kind of coalitions and cooperation methods will be formed in such systems. All right. So that's interesting. <laughs> I don't, I, I know she talks really fast, but I, you know, let me, let me see if I can go over here and just, so I just want to deconstruct this for a minute. So this was part of a longer talk, but what she was talking about is using computation to game out different outcomes based on certain variables and individuals are agents people and and this is something that's not new like they've been like if you're an economist and you do this kind of modeling like this is just so old hat but like regular people don't know the ins and outs and the nuts and bolts of like what economic policy looks like right and so so this idea of modeling all of these variables like 
at first people had to do them by hand and and actually the women who did those at Bell Labs were called the computers and then they actually got mechanical computers and now we have quantum computers. So there, there's this idea that they can go and like model out all of the outcomes and then choose what they imagine is optimal. So like this prisoner's dilemma game, it's about like competition or cooperation. Like ultimately that's what these games are coming down to. Are you going to uh, serve your own interests at the expense of someone else? Are you going to cooperate for maybe a less big payout, but something that works more equitably? And that's what most of this stuff is being framed as. And so they're using mathematical modeling to figure out which incentive gets which outcome. Like one of them is balanced pink and blue. One of them is like total cooperation. And you can imagine as, you know, if we're going back to uh, the, let's see, the Sega Foundation map, right? And we've got these holons, we have these agents, we know what our teams are, we have them modeled uh, in mathematical modeling, and we have folks like Kenneth Boldham or Elise, his wife Elise, who are into, you know, peace and justice and Irvin Laszlo, you know, who wants everything engineered properly. Um, oh, I, real, I forgot that I'm over here. Yeah, so, yeah, so you've got, you, you know, you've got Bolding over here who's looking for peace and his wife is looking for peace. And then you've got the Laszlo's of the world who are looking for the homeostasis. And you've got the quantum computers that are doing the modeling. And of course, everyone's going to agree that we want the, the highest utility function, right? The best outcome according to whatever somebody else has decided. And so in that way, like money is going to change. And, and money isn't my specialty, it's more Jason's specialty, but we have to start to get our, our mind around the fact that what we understand of money is much more fluid. And what she's saying is that money is gonna be backed by computation power. Now, I will say that when I was like, on like commenting on that IEEE webinar about the metaverse rollout, you know, I did ask about things like DNA data storage, which is is now like pretty commonly understood and plans to be used. Uh, it, it started out in artificial artificial DNA in an, in a non in an artificial setting, but they have actually started to store uh, DNA data as in the DNA of bacteria. <laughs> and that's something that happened last year. And I brought that up in the commentary because right now, if we're gonna build a new empire, it has to live somewhere. The data has to live. Like what they're trying to do is create pervasive computational environments and they need the data stores and they need it accessible. So they, 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 and what we have now, these server farms are just not viable over the long term for that purpose. They're not viable for blockchain. They're not viable for the data access. But I think that they're looking at non-traditional methods, so like the DNA. And so I asked, I said, well, what do you think about in vivo? Because I had forgotten about the bacteria experiments that had already passed. And the guy who's the incoming president of the Institute of Electronics and Electrical Engineers that's setting up the metaverse, whose specialty is in data storage, he's like, oh, that's not a thing. Like, that doesn't happen. And I'm like, like... So the guy who would be the most expert in it was like kind of flustered by the fact that I even brought this up. So, um, you know, the, the next phase is this idea of a, you know, a neural web and sharing your brain cycles. So this was from Melanie Swan. This was a paper that she had in the Journal of Evolution and Technology in 2016 uh, called The Future of the Brain Computer Interfaces, Blockchaining Your Way into a Cloud Mind. And, you know, it's it's. It's a very readable paper, actually. Um, but I'll just say, uh, 
in section 3.2, it's talking about a CloudMind starter application, sell your unused brain processing cycles to the cloud. In the future, cloud minds involving human brain power might be facilitated by BCIs, the brain computer interface, or other ways of linking human cognitive processing to the internet. The key feature is the live 24 seven connection, not just generally to the internet, but specifically to other brains and machine thinkers. One way that individuals might start to explore and adopt BCI cloud mind applications is in a starter application, an idea of selling permissioned brain cycles to the cloud. This is a parallel concept to selling self-generated electricity from solar panels to the grid. The structure could be time-sharing cognitive processing power during sleep cycles or other downtime, conceptually similar to participating in community computing projects. Okay, so yeah, citizen science, they'd like for you to just open up your brain to them. And But if you understand it within this trajectory, right? Like the goal is that you have a fortune made up of people. Okay, and these are poor people. These are people who are socially marginalized who need your help, right? So it's like the, the Lord and the serfs. And then you've got the gamification. So you wanna make it somewhat pleasant um, or people won't compete. And this idea of biophysics and getting the nanotechnology, the bio nanotechnology and the synthetic biology working and all of those alternative energy systems, which again, I would encourage people to look at vantage point capital partners investments in alternative energy and batteries. And then you might look at RFK Jr. in a different light once you understand the role of the alternative energy system in all of this. Um, that it's about keeping things balanced with homeostasis. This relates to the tokenized economy that are coming. Uh, all of this is based on the earlier um, idea of uh, energy balancing in systems. Uh, here, like we'd like to balance your energy. Can we just draw a little energy off your brain while you're sleeping? And just, I would say, think about all of the wearable technologies that are focused on sleep systems right now, right? And 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 also the biofeedback. Um, so so let's see, I'll, I'll move along. So after the Melanie Webb uh, paper. They also talk about credit assignment, and this is what blockchain is for. So if you're in a group mind with other people's minds and machine minds, uh, they're talking about all of the electronic activities recorded, logged, and tracked with smart contracts, and that machine learning would be able to re reward the value you create. Like so, like in GitHub, if you do a project and it's later used, it would be tagged with your input and you would get some sort of micro payment at the end for participating in the cloud mind. So um, again, I keep telling my husband, I'm like, I'm not crazy. I'm really just talking about what really powerful people are talking about. And it's disturbing enough that I think we ought to unpack it and seriously consider what the implications are. Now, this is a slide share from Pavel Leksha. Uh, he... I came across this uh, slide share. He, he actually is the founder of the Global Education Futures Forum. He's Russian. His background is in mining and in industry. Uh, he is connected to the Skolkovo School of Business, which is like the Silicon Valley over there. And um, they've, uh, they, uh, he then created the Global Education Futures Forum and then World Skills because the, the skills, the stackable credentials and skilling are about the finance and again, the AI machine learning data sets. So in 2014, and I often use this, this image, but, and I've, I've seen this slideshow so many times, but it really wasn't until this past month of diving into token economics and tokenized governance 
that I I really started to understand the collective mind aspect, not just like toss off, like say hive mind and whatever, but like the real particulars of how this was going to work. Now this was from 2014. And like, imagine I was coming across talks of his in like 2016 before I really even understood what blockchain was. I didn't know what transhumanism was. And so, you know, this this, uh, presentation, and I haven't found the video for it, but it's called the NeuroWeb Roadmap Enacting Our Transhumanist Future. and transhumanist visions from uh, a March tw- uh, 2014 conference. So this is the the first image, and it has sort of this psychedelic, spinny mandala of eyeballs spinning around, like with their the cover image. And then one of the slides goes on to say again, it has this really strange, sort of psych hallucinogenic kind of ant creature with multiple eyes and antennas sticking out and it's crazy sci-fi landscape and it says that in the future we will have shared and synthesized experiences with ultra fast learning sensoriums transfer of body mind states and neuro dreaming and i would just emphasize that like isn't this pretty much what mk ultra was about <laughs> like you know like this is what they were getting at or slm or all of these like alternative consciousness movements was to move into this direction. But again, how much of this is going to be non-consensual, right? Like neurodreaming, tapping into your brain waves. What if you're poor and the local homeless shelter run by, you know, the Baptist church, you know, has your, you know, headband hookups like with every cot and so like the condition of you being able to stay the night is that you sell your brain cycles to the internet you know that's pretty crazy um this is another slide it shows this sort of you know steep curve like steep graph up towards the singularity it says it's not ai or kurtzweil it's not augmented Vinji, it's augmented humanity trans social collective mind more along the lines of turk Turchin, Jocelyn, and Heiligen. And I know um, we've looked into uh, Heiligen quite a bit, and Sebs has too, about he's he's definitely involved in sort of the systems engineering. So again, not AI and not augmented, but a collective augmentation of a collective mind. Um, And again, this is collectivism, not socialist. Even though he's Russian, he's working with MIT and the Gates Foundation. they're looking at a psychozoic era of collected minds and bodies that that gather in a forest, a mind forest. Uh, that it is we have shared bodies and minds. Um, our minds and bodies can merge with machines. We are post-verbal. Um, we are existing as nodes of the global brain, and we need a new ethics of coexistence with the machines. And so this is, again, this is 2014. Um, And so you can imagine how, you know, the last three years that we've lived through with this idea that you don't have a say over what happens to your body um, within the social context because it's for the common good, how this will merge with like you don't have the right to your own autonomy of your mind right like we are indebted to share your mind with um uh with uh, with machines so that we can solve these grand challenges um the roadmaps they talk about the hardware so the um the transfer of the neural data with the quantum computers uh, that we need, they need to work on the brain mapping um, and the brain emulation, uh, and this idea of of mental data transfers. That's your blockchain mind files. 
And then the third section is the protocol. And, you know, Jason and Leo and I talked a lot about protocol labs and these new automated smart contract systems that I, I really think that the the smart contract layer and digital identity is making us agents or nodes into this giant computer. Um, and, and they're looking for productive body-mind states. Um, and it says protocols that control collective intelligence and group consciousness processes. And so, you know, if you have a kid in school and what they're focused on is you're hearing a lot about mindfulness or yoga or executive function or grit or resilience or biofeedback and wearables, it doesn't have anything to do with India. It doesn't have anything to do with like hippies. It doesn't have anything to do with woke. It actually has to do with collective consciousness engineering, which at its I mean, and, the, the, you know, again, the Soviet Union was doing very high level work in parapsychology and altered states of consciousness for many years. But like we had our own programs as well. Right. And, and so if you look at, at Artichoke and MK Ultra and Monarch and these these programs, like it wasn't just to torture people. It wasn't just to have hits and for deep state assassinations. Really what they were aiming for was to get to this place, to get to this place, not just individual people accessing different experiences in different energetic zones, but to do it collectively and to try to harness that energy as a computation device. And so to me, it sort of feels like, you know, really that there's some mechanical intelligence that's trying to break through to use us as its computing, like computing infrastructure. And this is the last one from the Pavaluksha. It, it says, before we get to the neuroweb, so the, the phase before we get to this full-on vision, there is the biometry web um, where the internet um, connects us uh, through uh, wearables, eye tracking, body motion. And so I would say that the learning economy that is coming through devices, through cyber physical environments, through cybernetic steering is all about biometry or biometry uh, is the measurement. They call it the quantified self. And so this, this uh, slide talks about um, re bi biometry reading uh, for control, learning, wearables, uh, non-invasive neurofaces, eye trackers, okay? And then they have a biometry meta-language. And so this is another thing that Holland talks a lot about is, um, is the grammar, the grammar of the machine and coming up with the language uh, of the, the human machine language. So looking for pattern recognition in multidimensional space of body and mind states, right? So this is the space-time continuum um, supported by big live data is what they're saying. And then biometry control is the biofeedback training to master these body-mind states um, and switching between. They want you to be able to switch between states. And again, so when you're talking to people, I mean, I'm sure that there are many people who have used biofeedback in the pre-era that it wasn't connected to the cloud for alternative healing modalities, right? And that's great. I think it's a whole different ballgame once it's in the cloud, connected to blockchain, connected to um, uh, more ubiquitous sensing 
networks and then used to steer people into these states and then having the expectation that you can just flip a switch. I mean, that is an alter, that is a mental break. And actually in one of these talks later that I'll, I'll go into, Zargam talks about, he doesn't mean it in this way, but the languaging is very similar, that in your digital identity, you should be able to fragment that identity so that you don't share your entire identity in every instance, right? So in the fragmentation, it's actually ironic the, the, the DAO people, the tokenomics people, they're always fighting what they call a Sybil attack. And, and a Sybil is actually named after a Sybil, the book, I guess it was a nonfiction book about a woman with multiple personality disorder. This idea that one person could establish like a hundred personalities out there, but they all track back to one individual. And so they're trying to control all of that. But really what they're asking us to do in the digital space is to start to um, dissociate, like have controlled dissociative disorder. And then essentially what they're saying is that you will have an artificial agent that will mirror you and support these complex mental activities uh, controlled with biometry. And, and I don't have it right here, but there is something Alexander Singer, who was a, with Star Trek, actually did a short film, like a 20-minute film, and I can put it in the comments later, um, where he was modeling what this would look like. You would have this wearable and it would govern the information coming in through all of these different sensing environments and to guide you into making the right decision uh, through this massive wave of, of information that was coming in. So this this AI, like your Alexa, right? Like your Alexa is not gonna be that thing that sings to your kids or reads them a book or does whatever, tells you the temperature or orders you like takeout. Like your Alexa is going to be your like, you know, altered state of consciousness guide into some collective problem solving room where the blockchain is going to track your um, contributions for future micro token payments. And so like, as this is all going, like, I think the idea of the creative economy is, is central to this. They need the artists. Like these people are technicians. They don't really have have it together to come up with the imaginative, like their imagination works within a really structured framework. And so this idea of engineered complexity within a multi-agent system, they're like playing with us like we're their swarm robotics, right? And these little lines connecting us are the lines in our social networks. And they're they're steering us around like these robots, but they, they, they want to use us their creativity is in trying to use us as a prosthetic to get to the creativity. Um, again, I, I just have a link to Holland and he's talking about genetic algorithms and the way in which complex systems adapt um, and emergent properties come out that, that are unexpected. And so I think what we're seeing lately in a lot of the conversations that are happening around uh, the disruption of AI in film, the disruption of AI in conversational language, the disruption of AI in visual arts or performing arts, um, not just NFTs, but the scraping of data and pulling it into the machine learning systems. And that's all horrible, but I would say the lens that I use because I came at this from understanding the education space and knowing that there were all of these data breaches of educational records so that people would demand proper privacy, but once you get the proper privacy, that's a digital identity, which means that you're essentially giving up a future of 
education that isn't a digital playlist. <laughs> like once you seed to like, okay, yeah, I need privacy. And for this privacy, I need a digital identity. Um, that what is coming, it's, it's not the answer. Like they're gonna give you an answer. They have it in their back pocket and it's not what you want. And for the artists, it's going to be like, oh yeah, well you can have your artistic digital identity and we can, when the AI scrapes your data and uses it, you'll get a token. You'll get some fraction of a token. Um, but they need the artist to train the AI because clearly the AI, it doesn't have any creativity in and of itself. And within these systems, I talked about this a little bit before on the this tokenization of, of society. They're looking at exploring the adjacent possible. This is a paper um, by some J uh, Japanese scholars, exploration and exploitation of the adjacent possible for open-endedness. They want to bring together people and machines and plants and animals and whatever into these um, strange, unlikely places in altered consciousness to I mean, they say solve some problem. I, I'd really be curious what problems they're planning on solving beyond like climate, really. Like some of these things are empathy, having empathy for each other, which I mean, we should, but not like this. Uh, but it's it's pulling together uh, this these adjacent possibilities. And all of the, the dance of this is social physics. And uh, Alexander Sandy Pentland at MIT in the Human Dynamics Lab is, is a key player in all of this. And this is from one of my other maps. He, he's, he's colleagues with John Clippinger and together they developed an early digital identity system called the Open Mustard Seed Platform. This was in 2013, and it was a personal data store with trust frameworks um, and digital common law. And, and it, was, it was being used with pilots in the Boston after school program uh, and some, some different other applications. Like they, they do these early small programs. But uh, as you develop your digital identity, um, and again, open mustard seed for people who are you know Christian, like that's a pretty charged name to be giving your digital identity is the mustard seed, um, uh, that they're looking at your identity, but your identity in relationship to other people. And that's the sociometrics. Uh, how do you communicate? How do you team? What do you produce? What are the products? Um, so, so yeah, so we've got the creative economy. And then I'll just show you, uh, this actually came from Seb's, it's a, it's a GIF of a directed acyclic graph. Let me see if I can, uh, oh no, that's not it, just one sec. No, that's not it either. I thought, oh, maybe this is, oh, there we go. Let me see if I can zoom in a little closer. But can you see it moving on the screen? It's wriggling. And so that's like us. Like we're the nodes and there's uh, nodes and edges are the lines and how we uh, relate to one another or material or digital media. And this is called a DAG or a directed acyclic graph. And so like imagine it almost looks alive, like, you know, maybe these fungal networks that are spreading out and imagine, you know, people who've been on social media for, you know, 10 years or something, you know, what your what your graph, what your social graph looks like. So, um, and then ultimately that the plan is the omega point, 
right? The Talhard de Jardin. Um, you know, he, this is a an image that has complexity on on the vertical axis, consciousness on the horizontal axis, and it moves from creation through the physical universe, uh, the biosphere, the noosphere, which is kind of this thought layer that's emergent thought layer, the pneumatosphere, and eventually the me- omega point, and what they call Christogenesis, which is this ultimate merger. And I think that there is something also with like this unification, like the the Tao or the Dao, I don't know how you say it, but like the decentralized autonomous organization, the DAO and the Tao, T-A-O and harmony and this uni- this grand unification. But whatever is happening, and like I think this is what a lot of the sort of the ascension point kind of people talk about, the stuff that's going down, and I'll talk. I'll be able to indicate this more clearly when we go through the Arizona State stuff. But it's being driven by a military power. Like this isn't a religious power. This is a. Um, it's a military project, and the game that we've been invited into um, in this these sort of tentacular thinking. It's 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 esoteric, and it's 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 kind of disturbing. I'll just show you really quickly. Um, one of the things I'm going to talk about is this thing called the metagame. And the metagame is related to something called uh, game, uh, game B. Game B was developed a uh, concept by Jim Rutt. Let me see if I can pull. No, I don't have that one up yet. Um, essentially, game B, it's like sort of the counter to neoliberalism, but it is uh, like tokenized collectivism. And um, actually quite a number of people connected with the intellectual dark web, including the Weinstein brothers are involved in it. And um, it's a lot of the people who are connected are also involved in um, uh, neurohacking and nootropics and mental, like altered mental states. And that's not not a real shocker when you see where this is all going. So um, so this this metagame, one of the players that how I found out about it, his name is Michael Zargum. He's with Block Science. I initially uh, read about him in Leo's work um, on uh, IXO Foundation and Cello over on Silicon Icarus. And then I've spent some time looking into him. He, uh, this isn't him actually, but he, he came out of Penn Engineering uh, he worked in systems and simulation analysis. A lot of his PhD funding came from the military, and he also had affiliations with Wharton. And again, Kevin Wareback is over there at Wharton, uh, you know, the the head of uh, blockchain and gamification. So it feels like this metagame that's coming is an invitation to help build out the Web3 layer um, in community as a game uh, with mutual support and sort of this feeling of belongingness. Uh, but it's, as I always have said, like they're not gonna pay for the open air prison to be coded into reality at full w- regular waged labor. This is gonna be forced labor or underpaid labor. And so if they can get you a, to play a game and with the promise of some payout tokens at some future point, like that's how it's gonna go about. So um, so this metagame, they call it a, 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 a digital first socioeconomic ecosystem, a fusion of social media and freelancing platforms inspired by role-playing games. And again, so in this extended reality where you have pervasive uh, computing environments that cross over from your material world into the virtual world, um, it's kind of like LARPing, like all of this LARPy stuff, the live action role-play, that's going in and out of the metaverse as part of this. Like, again, as you're fracturing your consciousness, this is... um, this is where where it's going next. So this is this is metagame. Uh, th- they're 
their Twitter, again, there's a lot of magenta. Steffers talks about the magenta stuff a lot. You've got this book. I'm not sure what's on this book, but it could definitely feel like a ledger when we're talking about Google selfish ledger. And you've got, again, these sacred geometries in the upside down pyramid with the circle here. And then it gets a little bit more disturbing as you go along. So oct the octopus is, is um, one of their key features as well as, and I don't know how you pronounce that, Cluthlu or whatever the Lovecraft squiggle squid faced guy, and then this is this is the front page of their um of of the of their game. It's called uh like if you look up metagame dot wtf, and this is it. And it it's kind of like it would be sort of silly, but it's like whoa, um you've got this you know. What's clearly sort of a kundalini energy going on, right? You've, you've got this pyramid poking down. You have this void reaching up out of the void are these tentacles. You've got crystals like surrounding the void is sort of this fuzzy purple carpet, which could be a little bit like vagina dentata like. Uh, it's all in shades of violet. And then in the upside down pyramid, you've got a, a, a circle that's braced into the pyramid that sort of has these blue energetic sort of electrical squiggly things and an eyeball in it. So you've got your panopticon there and that's the metagame. And that's how they like to sell it to you is these tentacles grabbing, grabbing this thing. And they talk about a, a way that metagaming is a concept that predates this particular application. It's a game that operates outside the rules of the understood game. And in this imagery, you've got a faceless figure that's twisted in by a, um, a tentacle. And, and they call this a massive online coordination game. So the coordination, that is the swarm intelligence. Um, and it goes beyond the environment. And then uh, within this, it says, while you're sleeping, people are waking up to the world-shaping potential of Web3 technologies. They are grabbing the opportunity to build the future they want to live in. Web3 technologies are allowing us to reimagine socioeconomic systems from the ground up. Now, that's interesting that they're talking about sleeping and then they have someone at a desk and these Z notes coming up as though they're sleeping in front of their computer. But, you know, when I, I keep saying, like, if you're not spending half your intellectual free time understanding Web3, you're doing it wrong. So just keep that in mind. Um, and then it, it goes on. It says the problem, a new world is being built, but it is hard to navigate. The resources, building blocks, and tools are all over the place, but the maps are inexistent. There are pitfalls, gold-rushing cowboys and snake oil salesmen at every corner. It's a wild web. So the people in metagame want to hold your hand and be your friend and guide you through the labyrinth, right? Through their labyrinth. It's, and then there's a, a, an image of a, a monitor, kind of an older monitor, and it says, what are we doing? Exactly, what are we doing? It says producing content, they're doing educational content, um, organizing events, bringing people together, assembling the puzzle, building things like Metasys and MyMeta as well as MetaOS to make it easy to integrate other building blocks, uniting aligned peoples, bringing together anyone aligned on the idea of building a new kind of society, individuals joining MetaFam as well as projects joining Meta Alliance. So they're building out the modules. Like they have the basics of Web3, but it's too hard for people who aren't hardcore coders. So now they're like dumbing it down and creating modules, creating interfaces and making things easier and easier for regular people. 
This is what one of the leaderboards looks like. Um, this is a person named Kay. It says this person's bio, a builder of bridges and a player at Giveth. Now Giveth is one of these online philanthropy platforms. Uh, the common stack, and I have a lot about the common stack in my map and metagame. Uh, they work about 10 hours a week on this and uh, their favorite emoji is a bee and their their indicator is like a beehive. And then they have a gallery of NFTs and it says they, they it's, if you viewed all of them, they would, they would have 236 NFTs in their profile. Um, so again, this is the future of work, guys. This is what I'm saying. And it says, why now? Why are they doing metagame now? And this is, this is a number of years old. This is probably maybe 2017. It says, we call them DAOs around here as DAOs, but these kinds of organizations are not new. They've been running in parallel with centralized economies since forever. They just weren't scalable. Well, it's possible about now. And this should allow us to align incentives between the people that build things, the people that own things, and the people that want things making all three into a single group of stakeholders. Most of what we need is enabled by Ethereum with various mechanisms built on top, allowing game warping. Now the game warping was what was mentioned in the artificial economy uh, when they were talking about remaking money, that the game warping was essentially being able to change behavior in the game. So it says game warping, dot, 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 defined as using transparent, triggerable, unstoppable burns and payments to move game theoretical, game theoretic equilibria or create new player actions. So that's what they can do with these artificial economies, the token economies. They can, in the game, use the smart contracts to change the equilibrium of the game. Okay, that's game warping. Game warping stacks as a new layer atop an uncooperative game to make cooperation the rational choice. Again, and I'm not against cooperation. I'm just like, I don't want to cooperate in like a mind room with a machine and like some bugs. Like I don't think like coerced cooperation is right. But they're going to say that we have to cooperate, right? Or the world is going to end because they've that's the narrative that they've laid out. It says, we are living in times, here you go, living in times of unprecedented leverage given to us by information technologies. It's never been easier to affect the world. Rather than sacrificing ourselves in bloody revolutions, we're able to revolutionize the world from the comfort of our living rooms. <laughs> and so like, yeah, again, these are like sofa based, you know, and you know, it would be one thing if these people were building this all out for themselves and there was room for the rest of us to say, no, thank you. I'm just walking away from your pink tentacles and, you know, polyhedra. But it won't be because the future of the world is that money is going to be embedded into the environment through tokens and community wallets and signal transfers and energetic currencies and run from outer space. There's not going to be a place that... There's, it's not easily divisible to say this is a place for the people who like Web3 and then there's going to be some other place for people who don't prefer to live in a game work environment. I mean, that's that's just what's what's coming. And um, okay, so then it says, what the F is it then? It is an idea that we can build a new world, a layer on top of the old one. We define it as a massive online coordination game, a mashup of a learning platform, a social platform, a freelance network, and a MMORPG. 
The current goal of the metagame is to build a metagame and solve onboarding and navigation. With time, we hope people will step up and integrate and help get the rest of the tools going to run the socioeconomic systems. An alternative socioeconomic system for those who aren't vibing with the mainstream, along with physical locations and anything one might need to live a fulfilling life and thrive, a network society or a network state, right? And the network state is, again, from the, the other map there. Um, oh, and an open source framework for others to do the same. So all of this has to be open source, and open source are the digital public goods for the impact investments. It says, in the long run, we aim at helping human societies evolve from a world run by inefficient bureaucracies and too efficient corporations into a world governed by decentralized organizations that take care of their ecosystems. So again, it's an evolutionary project. It's a eugenics project at the end of the day. It's a eugenics project. Um, and yeah, it just here, here's one it talks about, check out game B and metamodernism. And, and I don't have time to get into all the game B stuff later, but I'll do that on another podcast. But it's definitely worth looking into Jim Rutt and the Weinstein brothers and some of this integral theory. And then it's just interesting how it's branded because again, I keep um, sort of emphasizing that this is the new empire, like this is the new manifest destiny. And so, like they close out saying with a Margaret Mead quote, never doubt a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Only it's literally overlaid on top of Mount Rushmore, which is like the most colonized like institution. Like it just essentially the sacred Black Hills of the Lakota people carved with these founding fathers and politicians, you know, Lincoln, what like, they, they've taken the natural environment and remade it to exhibit man's domination over nature. And so it just kind of says it all in terms of the economy that they're planning and, and where it's all going. And then later on, it's like, we want you. And they have this Uncle Sam. So it's, you know, I would just ask, like, I can see, you know, early on, I had these run-ins, right, with John Bush and Derek Bros and their freedom cells and not like, I'm like, you don't need blockchain. You don't need blockchain to run your small local community. You don't need this technology. Like, you don't need to be inviting uh, game developers with high level security clearances with uh, military back intelligence backgrounds to your, you know, reinvention conferences, right? Why is that, right? Um, you don't really, that's not about like off the grid life. You don't need blockchain, you don't need gamification, but you do if the idea is that you're gonna live in an eco village in Costa Rica as an expat and then do your remote work through GitHub or you know get your UBI and get and sell your brainwave cycles, right? And so like, I'm just wondering if you think about all of this like anarcho-capitalist, libertarian, like even the Ascension stuff, you can see how many of the different brands and flavors of the resistance have been guided directly into this, which is why I wanted to talk about the future of work because this meta game is kind of the work that's going, many people are going to be doing. They're gonna be building out Web3. That's, it's just like there were many people building the railroads um, that, you know, settling the frontier. The new frontier actually has to be built out and yeah, that's going to be a lot of the work that's coming. And, um, you know, anyway, I think that that's, it's important to consider. So, so let me just, so that's mostly metagame. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to pause here for a minute and I'm going to go to, let me see. I'm going to go to this format. Um, 
This is a blog post that I wrote in February of 2019. And it's important because it links together a lot of what's coming you know, what, what I forgot to say about the Calvert and that, that bank, the Mission Investment Bank, I, I think that the, the, the socially marginalized people who will be tapped to do this kind of work, the metagame work, they're going to be in opportunity zones. And the opportunity zones were, again, every state was supposed to designate 20% of their low-income census tracts, places that had been redlined intentionally to depress the communities so that developers could pick up prices for cheap, put in their upgrades um, without needing any input from the communities, launder their money, and not only get money on their real estate development, but also these tax credits were for businesses that were like social entrepreneurship businesses. And so these would be for things like charter schools and coding boot camps and probably wellness centers and things that were ostensibly to help patch back up the, the communities that were downtrodden by the, the last economic system. Only in doing so, that means everyone is pulled into the panopticon. And so the, the, the programs that are connected to the opportunity zones um, is also going to be collective impact. Uh, this is going to be running through the United Way offices um, at, at, and also Strive Together, which was a spin out of, of um, Knowledge works. Uh, sometimes it's directly from Strive Together. Sometimes they just call it collective impact, but the United Way is generally the hub. And what's required is data sharing. Uh, and they're trying to get digital profiles, again, for the learning agents on low income families. And really, the children are the access point. And, and in that, I will say um, the conservatives really were like, on the watch for this. They, they, they were the ones who were doing, doing it right, but they were misunderstanding what was happening as some sort of Marxist takeover. And I'm like, no, it's not a Marxist takeover. Like it's, it's this, it's like the ant computer, right? And so as long as you're sitting around yelling at it and pretending that it's a Marxist takeover, you're never actually gonna be able to join and try to educate the progressives about what's really happening, which is like, they're pulling your children into ant computer for swarm robotics, right? Like, and we need to actually, the middle class and the professional class look after the poor because they're the ones who are gonna be targeted first. Like, and so we can't wait till it creeps back up and they're, they're coming after your kids who, who would be going to like, you know, mid-level liberal arts colleges. No, you actually have to stand up for everybody and you have to try to figure out how to nicely articulate what's happening to people and deconstruct that this social safety net that's being proffered is actually this web that whatever the dag the directed acyclic graph it's going to wrap people up in these fungal networks of computing and suck their life energy into the darn you know blockchain brain cycle Okay, so I'm gonna read uh, read this blog post. Um, it's called Boiling Frogs and Building Brands, uh, Procter & Gamble's Partnership with Strive. And this was, I, I wrote this on February 21st, 2019. Uh, this is a follow-up to my previous post about Strive Together's plans for a quote-unquote cradle-to-career collective impact. Pursuing this work is a curious experience. Most times I can't tell what if any progress I'm making, and yet I continue to forge ahead and regularly stumble across guideposts that seem to affirm I'm doing the work I'm supposed to do. See, this is I say this all the time, right? I was saying it back in 2019. 
So I sit back down at the kitchen table and keep going, as my friend Chris says, a Jeremiah warning of the coming of the Babylonians. A recent sign for me had to do with Strive and Knowledge Works being based in Cincinnati. It's not a city most people think much about, but it holds a prominent place in my childhood memories. You see, my dad was a career executive at Procter & Gamble, which is headquartered there. His job, selling Folgers coffee, was our family's ticket to a comfortable suburban life, far different from his own unstable childhood as the son of an often underemployed mason and cashier. It seems uh, mason, meaning like cement blocks, he built agricultural silos in Kansas, my grandfather. It seems somehow fitting that I step up now to call out this company on its efforts to step up to set up an infrastructure of cybernetic biocapitalism. Strive worked closely with executives at P&G in setting up collective impact, as seen in the following excerpt from the report, putting collective impact in context, prepared for the Wallace Foundation by Teachers College Columbia University in 2015. The cradle to career pipeline is being constructed with specific metrics that will underpin speculative investment markets in human capital. Everyone was given marching orders. Comply with the established metrics or you're out of the club. Okay, and so this is a, a screenshot quote. Um, the group agreed that the first priority should be to delineate, delineate goals and measures that would give them a concrete means for measuring whether their collective actions were actually having an impact. Organizationally, through executive leadership convenings and follow-up committee meetings, each partner accepted a specific role and contribution to meeting the benchmarks and indicators set by the group. So these key performance indicators, and this is just this is just me talking, the key performance indicators are really central to all of this online work management, reputation management. Um, the goals and measures are this cybernetic approach of governance, right? You, you have to have something that you're steering towards. Um, Okay, so uh, based on the data, the partnership leaders would then tailor future efforts, identifying services or programs that were proving essential and dropping those that were proving less productive. An administrative staff originally comprised of employees on loan from KnowledgeWorks Foundation, Procter & Gamble, and other partners coordinated the work and led the partners through a planning process to contribute to the joint goals. Now, I would say, this is just, again, me talking, I was not aware at the time um, I always just knew Procter & Gamble as like Folgers Coffee and Pampers and Jif Peanut Butter and Dawn and Cask. You know, like I knew the products. I didn't act, and, and I knew the history with that they were like a candle company or whatever. They they processed the pig fat that was left over when they brought all the pigs to be slaughtered along the Ohio River, um, that they would save the fat and make candles and soap. And that, you know, then they were, I think they sold them to the Union Army during the Civil War. But what I didn't realize is that defense aspect stayed with them. And they were actually involved in a lot of defense contracting during the Cold War era, um, and including some nuclear stuff in Texas, which I had no idea about, I had no uh, understanding about that at all. Um, so that was really news to me and something that I, I only found out much later. Okay, so going back to this excerpt, an apparent success of the Strive Partnership Project in trending forward on many of their defined indicators, such as kindergarten readiness, fourth and eighth grade reading scores and graduation rates, as well as their transformative approach to social change, generated broad national interest in a cross-sector collaboration. In 2011, uh, sorry, uh, 
yeah, tw- uh, 2011, Nancy Zimfer, who was then the president of the University of Cincinnati and one of the prime initiators of the Strive approach, and Jeff Edmondson, a former KnowledgeWorks executive who had led the backbone administrative team for Strive Cincinnati, formed the Strive Together Cradle to Career Network. And within two years, projects in over 100 cities throughout the country sought to affiliate with this national network. Recently, the organization declared that only projects that have committed to their theory of action for effective implementation of collective impact and are making progress towards those goals will be accepted as members. Okay, so it's important to note too, Cincinnati also had quite a history around um, the Manhattan Project and radiation testing uh, related to that. Uh, so that that was related to the medical s- situation in Cincinnati. So that's an important, that's something that Jen Lake had brought to my attention. And um, yeah, so there was a lot going on in Cincinnati. And I will say too, like if you look up Pratt & Gamble, like their their logo is the moon and the stars. And so there's been a, lo- a lot of questions about the esoteric nature of that logo. And I will say, I actually went to Cincinnati on my way back from South Dakota in the summer of 2020. And the headquarters is right downtown. And I I saged my saged it and, and sort of made my like personal separation from that company. But it was situated directly opposite the Cincinnati Masonic Lodge. So on on the it was this large downtown courtyard, very geometric with a pergola and trees. And I got there in the evening. It was summer, so it was like nine o'clock and the sun was really just going down. It was the starlings and they were making that chittery sound and um, it was just very empty except for, you know, unhoused people. And, um, yeah, so the headquarters on one side, the Masonic Lodge facing it. And then if you looked at, looking ahead, as I was like doing the sage, I saw that it was the Nielsen building, the Nielsen ratings. And also it, they had a neuroscience lab and this, this part about neuromarketing and steering. So, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Okay. So now I'm going back to the blog. Uh, Jeff Edmondson, who with Nancy Zimfer helped set up this framework, is now managing director of Balmer Group, former Microsoft CEO Steve Balmer's investment company. Steve's wife, Connie, serves on Strive's board along with Edmondson. Uh, With the pipelines hooked up to schools, abundant capital is ready to flow. And just this week, Kansas City schools (coughs) announced their plan to use social solution software to share student data with local nonprofits. So these these data sharing agreements are central and often it is the United Way that's brokering the data sharing agreements. And Jeff Bezos's wife, our ex-wife, she's the one now who's going around and funding all the collective impact projects with the United Ways. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember her name, Mackenzie, something like that. Like she's the one who's putting a lot of her money into the United Way collective impact data sharing agreements. And a lot of the data sharing agreements for social emotional learning, those also came through the Wallace Foundation. Okay, so um, so they need the dashboards to build up again to get the data for the impact measurements for the data deals and then also to build up the digital twins. Um, so Balmer put fi- uh, $59 million into the company Social Solutions last year. And while Kansas City is not part of the Strive Network, its Turn the Page Literacy Initiative is part of FSG's Collective Impact Program. And then I have an image on social solutions that says Kansas City uh, Public Schools join social solutions in the Balmer Group in this data sharing agreement. Uh, Bring your impact to life. 
Uh, Striving Together, a book written by project lead and former president of the University of Cincinnati, Nancy Zimper, notes Nancy Swanson of P&G chaired the partnership's executive committee. Swanson reported directly to P&G's CEO and also served on the board of the Cincinnati Foundation. Her LinkedIn touts expertise in efficiencies, staffing reductions, data-driven decision-making, and digital marketing, an outlook well-suited to creating a just-in-time workforce pipeline catering to corporate interests. Um, Now, I will also say that Nancy Zimper, when she left the University of Cincinnati, became the chancellor of the State University of New York system, right? So she went to the big time, you know, and that, so all the stuff that was happening with Cuomo and um, Eric Schmidt and remaking, reimagining education for New York State was very much related to what we're going to be talking about. And it was an infrastructure that Nancy Zimper brought from Cincinnati into upstate the state of New York system, university system. Um, Okay, so Strive's focus on social emotional competencies should come as no surprise. Uh, This goal appears to be a compliant labor pool ready to be reskilled as needed, engineered to precise specifications, and sold at the lowest price possible. I envision a mashup of Friedrich Taylor's scientific management principles with Ithiel de Sola Poole's goal for machine-human symbiosis, all operating under conditions of peak neoliberalism. Only I was wrong. I didn't know about tokenomics at the time. So it's not neoliberalism anymore. We're going to move into like tokenized collective consciousness. I dread the prospect of cybernetic libertarianism and can only recommend that folks get Yasha Levine's new book, Surveillance Valley, read chapter two, Command, Control, and Counterinsurgency for a Deeper Dive. It's important. I cannot do it justice here, but the quote below gives you a sense of where we are headed. In fact, we may already be there. Now, I since have some reservations about Yasha Levine generally, like where he fits into all of this, but it still was a good book and it gave me a lot of important information. So this is a quote from his book. Poole saw computers as more than just apparatuses that could speed up social research. His work was infused with the utopian belief in the power of cybernetic systems to manage societies. He was among a group of Cold War technocrats who envisioned computer technology and networked systems deployed in a way that directly intervened in people's lives, creating a kind of safety net that spanned the world and helped run societies in a harmonious manner, managing strife and conflict out of existence. This system wouldn't be messy or wishy-washy or open to interpretation, nor would it involve socialist economic theories. In fact, it wouldn't involve politics at all, but it would be an applied science based on math, a kind of engineering. Surveillance Valley, page 67. And that's the deontic logic. That's the smart contract layer. It would be helpful if more people were talking about this before now. Okay, Uh, if Frederick Taylor was still alive, I'm sure he would be giddy over machine learning, Internet of Things, labor tracking, and XAPI data capture. It turns out Taylor uh, refined his efficiency program in Nicetown at the Midvale Steelworks. Another guidepost, what's left of the factory is just a stone's throw from where I live. If the collective impact crew intends to track human capital and competencies as a global knowledge supply chain, IoT, screen-based learning, and wearable tech will be key. And it's important to note that um, Taylor, his family, they were also Quakers. We know Silicon Valley's oligarchs, including Bezos and Zuckerberg, are busy patenting technologies to track the movement of workers. And this is pre COVID, right? Like imagine like this was this was the winter of 2019. I had no idea what was coming like the next year in terms of worker tracking. Um, 
Uh, going forward, it seems clear that digital learning will start to adopt such innovations, transitioning from screen-based learning to immersive digital environments designed to practice work-based skills. The images below show that a VR virtual reality and AR augmented reality training scenario for a young student could look like and the taxonomy of the data they intend to capture. And so uh, this is from a screen share of JCA solutions about virtual reality data capture. In the first image, it has uh, you know, a tween age young teen boy in a VR headset and a yellow vest uh, driving a piece of like warehouse equipment. Um, and then the second image shows a, a, a tablet. Uh, in the view shed of the tablet is a, um, uh, it has some piece of equipment and arrows pointing. And again, when they talk about us being post language, right, post literate, that's what we're meaning. Like. The future, like in this image, there are human hands holding the tablet to show what buttons to push, but I have a feeling that the end game with the remote robotics is that it's going to be a robot and the tablet you'll have will be with you in your living room and then you will be directing the robot which buttons to push. But you're, you're not supposed to know how the machine works because this is on-demand gig labor, so you might be pushing the buttons on that machine for a day or a week or a month, but not forever, and you're not supposed to know how that part of the machine works or what it connects to. You're just supposed to do your job and push the button, and, and that's the kind of mindset that they're training for, not just in public schools, right? Because if you do the out-of-school time learning, they're going to be doing the exact same thing in a non-traditional environment, which is what they're setting up. Like they're setting up project-based learning and work-based learning to disassemble public schools and do the school choice, educational choice program, but do it under digital surveillance. So then the next image uh, talks about a new taxonomy, and this is data capture from the haptics and the VR headset, which is something that most people, at least at this point in 2019, most parents had no idea that data was going the other way, right? That you were not just consuming data, but it was consuming data about you. So the it was it was taking in the the, the VR headset and haptics, heart rate, camera view. Uh, how the controllers and the audio were working. They were measuring your visual location, uh, the amount of time you took to do a task, your motion, the motion that was involved, getting your biometrics, if your eyes were focused, how many tasks you completed, what your score was on those tasks. Uh, this would be applied to testing subjects, students, administrators, and instructors. There would be data collected on all of those. And then there would be data about the physical location, motion sensors from the headset and the laptop. So, and then I guess in the waste bin, I don't know what that means, voice recognition, test mode, incomplete tasks, powered glove documentation, right? And so we're really asking, they're asking us to work when we say the outside in robot, like I really mean the outside in robot. So. This is a slide share from JCA Solutions, a company based in Orlando, which also happens to be the home of the Military Division of Advanced Distributed Learning. Okay, so everybody running to Florida because it's free, 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 free. <laughs> like you somehow like everybody conveniently forgot to tell folks relocating that it was the head of the military simulation technology system and the, the space launches, right? That like the, 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 meta, the meta game is gonna be run largely out of Orlando, right? And they want you out of those public schools and redeeming your uh, Cato Institute back vouchers in, in the, the headsets. Um, that's what's coming, okay. Uh, okay, so 
let's see. So once successfully demonstrated, skills get uploaded as badges or micro-credentials to learning lockers using specifications set by IMS Global. Yet Analytics, based in Baltimore, is a learning is partnering on XAPI and Human Capital Analytics, uh, now in conjunction with Hewlett Packard, Khan Academy, and the Learning Accelerator. With XAPI, all learning must re be reduced to a simple noun-verb-object statement. You can see how this works in the 90-second video. We can track it, and I'm going to I'm going to show this later. But the idea of a grammar—that's that's what Holland was saying here. That the, the chapter that I, I'm reading late, lately. I don't know if you can see it. Do, 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 do. Um, it says grammars as finitely generated systems. And I have here. I have a note to myself. It says, um, uh, grammar of human emotion, uh, and also what these coding boot camps are called general assembly. So like they're assembling a grammar. I feel like they're assembling a grammar of the human experience or the human nature experience. Uh, the tagline at the end of the video, learning happens everywhere, is timely since the state of New Hampshire is rolling out an initiative by the exact same name. Under, Learn Every, under the Learn Everywhere banner, students receive credits towards graduation when they attend out-of-school time activities, like a music class offered by the Boys and Girls Club. An FAQ attempts to head off anticipated criticism around lack of re requirements for credentialed instructors and inequitable treatment of families based on income since many opportunities are fee-based. The New Hampshire Department of Education website touts the program as an unbundled opportunity for budding entrepreneurs to offer flexibility while downplaying lack of regulation and potential for abuse. And so again, what's coming is they want everyone to be an edupreneur. And that's something that the Gates Foundation has been pouring money into for at least a decade, is this idea of teacher edupreneurs. Now, like, I don't know how the teachers think they're gonna be, like, they're gonna be gig workers. And if you're a teacher edupreneur, and we'll, we'll show this later on in some of the clips, you're, um, you're contingent labor, and essentially they're rating you based on the economic productivity of the people you teach. And it's all going on the blockchain ledger for your permanent record. And so like, that's not a good business model because eventually the AI is gonna learn all of the entrepreneurial content and it's gonna replace you. So they're just gonna use the human entrepreneurs until the AI personalized learning assistants come on the scene. But you know, a lot of the conservative libertarian angles like the free market, the Mises people are like, bring it, bring it. Like I'd love to be an entrepreneur, but like there's no regulation. And then all of a sudden you're sending kids with vouchers out into like work-based learning or project-based learning activities where you know, and I'm not saying clearly there are issues with children being harmed in public school settings too and in Catholic school settings, but like, it's just gonna be the wild west. Like you don't know who's teaching your kid. And I guess, I mean, maybe on the one hand, much of it's online and they actually can't get to your kid to touch them or reach them in some way that may be harmful. But like, we don't know, like it literally is, like there's not any regulation guiding what this is gonna look like. And yet we're barreling forward. And that's what like the Heritage Foundation and their financial technology and school choice are all about. And we're not answering any of these questions. And we're not realizing that even when we get the micro cert with our school choice, we're still gonna have to have the kid put that VR headset on and drive around the Amazon warehouse because that's the jobs they're gonna have or go on GitHub and do some code for the Web3. Okay, so um, so this is a screenshot from that New Hampshire program. Um, 
It says uh, that S State Board of Education and the New Hampshire Public Schools have a long-established policy that is reflected in both law and rule to accept educational credit from non-certified teachers. There's no requirement for teachers in either private or home education settings to be certified. Um, uh, Learn Everywhere captures the essence of state minimum education standards which state that we should harness all available community resources. As Clay Christensen writes in the foreword of Julie Freeland's book, Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Student Networks, Learn Everywhere allows those not even part of our traditional education system to mentor, support, and inspire young people. The assumption that a credentialed educator always results in a better educational outcome is not borne out by the underlying data. And while on the one hand, I don't disagree with aspects of that, and while like I'm pretty fed up with the teachers unions broadly because I feel like they are just so on the wrong path with so many things over the past several years, they just don't, they've lost the plot entirely. Like this idea, I would just say, if you're tempted to like marshal all your community resource and, and mentorships with these digital vouchers, you need to realize that everyone that gets in the program is gonna be part of the shared data pool, right? And so in this way, the people who are the most against regulation are actually incorporating all aspects of your community into the digital panopticon in the name of freedom. <laughs> and it's because they don't understand the outside in robot. They don't understand, like, nothing is going to be given away for free. Like, that's the bait. Like, that's the lure on the end of the fishing line. That's the cheese in the trap. Here you go. Have your choice. Take it back to your community. Get everyone involved. Because once everyone is involved for the well-being of the children, then we need to monitor everything, too. So, um, anyway, it's complicated. Uh, what is not being said is that while real-life community-based projects may be the first wave of Learn Everywhere initiatives, digital simulations will be waiting in the wings. Hedge funds and social entrepreneurs will plan to bet on impact and success, and that will likely be defined in terms of the number of stackable credentials earned rather than the more difficult or impossible metric of living wage jobs attained. The skilling and reskilling of people is what will keep global capital flowing in the coming years, even as rising automation means few workers ever attain stable employment. And then I have an image here about um, Mozilla um, and LRNG and IMS Global about the badges. It says open badges are visual tokens of achievement, affiliation, authorization, or trust relationships that are shared across the web. Open badges represent a detailed picture uh, more so than a CV or a resume, as they can be presented in ever-changing combinations, creating constantly evolving pictures of a person's learning. So that's your digital twin. Like you are literally going to be represented as your collection of tokens, just like that woman, like I showed you her leaderboard, it said she had 256 NFTs. Well, eventually those will be sold bound tokens and those will be her micro certs and her micro credentials. But, you know, as we scroll back and we look at this young boy in, you know, this driving warehouse piece of equipment and the VR headset and, and then the augmented reality tablet, like none of that indicates sustainable wage um, work right? It's, it's precarious work. It's surveilled work. So they're, they're, they're saying that these tokens will be, you know, somehow a better option, but they're not. They're not a better option. Um, and they're tokens, right? Badges are tokens. Badges are soul-bound tokens. And in the exchange of those tokens through the environment, that is part of the signaling. That is part of the complex systems, um, 
analysis that the the emergence that they're trying to get is by trading the tokens throughout the networks and tracking that and monitoring it on the graphs. So our value as human capital will be successfully demonstrating competencies, both cognitive and non-cognitive, whether or not they are ever productively utilized. And the thing is, so they need that because that's how the AI will learn. Even if they train us to do a task and we never get to do the task, if we do it in the panopticon, if we perform our humanity, if we exercise our intellect into the digital panopticon, we're mirroring it into the AI. And that's what they want, both for the finance deals and to train as a data trading set. As a result, those charged with providing evidence-based training funded by social entrepreneurs must develop inexpensive ways to deliver the multitude of badges that will be required by the financial markets. Mass digital learning is the way they intend to accomplish this task. As seen in the screenshot below, simulations are far cheaper even than disreputable MOOCs. Uh, that's massive online, whatever, classes. <laughs> they are counting on taking their project, their profit from the cost savings. So this screenshot says, according to Brandon Hall's Hall Group's research, developing an e-learning course takes 106 hours at $184 an hour. Producing a simulation takes an average of 96 hours, and that's a cost savings of $2,000, right? So you're going to be learning in a simulation. Like you content providers, you creative class people, you're going to be building the simulations. Like, you know, I, you know, I had a discussion with my friend today just about the, the art industry and the film industry. And I said, as much as I hate to say it, I feel like the film industry is going to be about immersive reality. Like you're not going to watch the movie and watch the story. You're going to be in the story. And so the film people, they're not going to have control over their own unit of production. They're literally going to be cobbling together different pieces of the immersive reality metaverse, right? For different experiences, for different simulation purposes, right? Like they'll create a movie about like how to earn a badge to sell a barbecue or something. And, and that's what a lot of the, like, and it won't be creative content, right? It'll be this soul killing like ads. It'll be like, like advertising and marketing firms only like with more mind control stuff built in. So uh, the JCA solution slide share describes a simulation that assesses the sample task of learning to pet an unknown dog safely. Using augmented and virtual reality, data is captured via a laptop, a headset, motion sensors, controllers, and a heart rate monitor. In the simulated setting, the computer determines if the individual demonstrates the competency. Did they complete the tasks in the right order? Were they nervous? Where was the student looking? Which dogs do they ask to pet? Do they refuse to approach any of the dogs? Do they pet the dog for too long? Do they not correctly position their hand? Do they never complete the task? And all of this data is logged and captured and added to the student's digital profile. And of course, this seems somewhat ridiculous now, but consider the image of the student in the yellow vest and VR goggles in the warehouse. This is the planned future if we don't begin to contest it now. We must refuse digital education, social emotional data collection, and career pathway profiling. To pretend it's not happening will seal the fate of future generations. And like this is the stuff that the culture war framing isn't helping on either side. I mean, this is the stuff that honestly, like the 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 critical race theory, like the the singular focus on that as the problem 
as this other horror show is rolling out isn't helpful, right? Like we should take the lessons learned from enslavement and indigenous genocide and apply them so that we all understand what is at stake and that we can collectively refuse it, right? But to to create these drama shows and, and then hide all of this bigger information that really matters to people, like that's wrong. And for all of the conservatives who are running around saying that the progressives are trying to brainwash their children with the, the, the social emotional learning while not saying that's a global impact market and not saying it to, to condition them for a global economy that is being run by global capital is also not right. <laughs> so like all the people are caught up in a story that affirms their view, but it's not what we need to be doing right now. Like, and I th I do think if we could clearly see this, if we could clearly go back and look at the little boy in the VR headset and look at this data being captured and understand that the future of work is that they, they program your augmented reality tablet to tell you what button to push, that that is not rewarding. That is not how we use our gifts. That is performing humanity for the AI. And it is, it's, it's something that we should not accept for our children or anyone's children here in the United States or in the global South. Nobody's kids should have to do this. And this Web3 is the piece of it. And so if we don't talk about the future of work and what this means, the future of work is building the prison, right? But they're going to tell us that building the prison is a public good. And they're going to make money on our building it as a public good. And so we just have to get really clear. Okay. This type of virtual learning relies on Internet of Things technology. It is the sensors that transmit the data that is captured for learning lockers. And it turns out that Procter & Gamble played a pivotal role in the development of Internet of Things, bankrolling a proposal pitched by Oil of Olay product manager Kevin Ashton, who sought to use RFID technology, radio frequency identification, for inventory management. Ashton had noticed that a particular brand of lipstick was chronically out of stock when he made his sales calls and envisioned embedding information in a microchip tag to improve global supply chains. They evolved into versions you can find today, sewn into clothing, embedded in credit cards, in the hands of Swedes who seem keen on using them to unlock doors at the office or hold payment information. Now, I'm not really, like, as I... I understand this better. I'm sure that Kevin Ashton wasn't actually like the story about the oil of Olay and the lipstick probably wasn't the real story, but that's the that's the legend that, that has come down. Pratchett Gamble loaned Ashton to the Auto ID Center based at the MIT Media Lab in Boston. And there he continued to refine RFID technology, which became the foundation of the Internet of Things, ubiquitous computing environments consisting of networks of sensors that electronically transmit real-time data. Auto ID Lab grew to a network of seven other facilities over 20 years. There are now additional nodes working on globalized supply chain management in the UK, Switzerland, Australia, Japan, Korea, and China. In recent years, research has focused on behavior tracking apps, blockchain data storage, and digital payment systems. This 2016 paper out of the St. Gallen Lab describes Internet of Things and augmented reality in considerable detail. See a complete list of publications here. And then I have a little sys map <laughs> that that you can still read pretty well. These are the ones that got disappeared, but it shows um, Kevin Ashton, the auto ID labs that initially started at MIT and then spread out. Um, and the fact that uh, Nancy Swanson, who was a former VP of corporate strategy at Procter & Gamble, and Jim Bechthold, who was a former marketing executive, both have ties to strive together. So again, the supply chain management, our children, the children of the world are the supply chain objects for the impact, collective impact economy. 
A second prominent P&G member of the Strive team was Jim Bechthold, a marketing executive who, with his wife, another P&G staffer, leveraged their branding expertise to grow Crossroads into a regional megachurch franchise. And I have a whole other thing about Peter Drucker and megachurches and how they fit into this. But remember, I always said that the churches are major partners in the public-private partnership. Uh, this is a screenshot about Jim Bechthold. Uh, Jim Bechthold is the co-founder of Flashlight Entertainment and Front Porch Entertainment, where he served as president from 2007 to 2011. These companies started to support Walmart and P&G's family programming and, and media initiatives. Bechthold's business expertise included top positions at Procter & Gamble, where he was vice president and general manager of multiple including head of North America marketing and strategy and planning and business units such as baby, family, and senior care in Asia. Bechthold is the co-founder of Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, one of the fastest growing churches in the U.S. with a weekly attendance of 18,000 plus. He was a co-leader of the nationally acclaimed Strive K-12 Educational Reform Initiative via the Knowledge Works Foundation. These initiatives have raised over $100 million. Jim Bechthold has a PhD in leadership and organizational development and degrees in business and decision science. He lives in Cincinnati with his wife and three children. Okay, then, churches, mega churches, and disruption and Internet of Things and children, right? I mean, think about how many of those church, how many churches out there do preschool? Like, are they going to do the Hatch Education Surveillance Play Tables, you know? Yep, what would Jesus say, right? So Maya Frazier's eye-opening piece, What Would Jesus Disrupt, which was in Bloomberg Business Week, describes the church's forays into venture capital efforts backing faith-based tech startups through an accelerator called Ocean, which is interesting because we've talked a lot about Ocean Protocol, right? Um, while, P while at P&G, Bechthold developed media partnerships with Walmart and went on to manage the Alliance for Family Entertainment, an arm of the Association of National Advertisers comprised of a coalition of 500 national brands. In the coming era of anywhere online playlist edutainment, it is not hard to imagine a mode of teaching and learning largely disconnected from physical schools and human instructors, where consumer brands and possibly religious doctrine brazenly dominate knowledge acquisition. So I would just say, the other thing about Procter & Gamble, it was they, they developed the soap opera, right? And so they were always about like family entertainment, right? And so what happens when you're working on Kenneth Boulding's moral economy when the moral economy is embedded into digital media consumption, potentially with wearable technology that can track your emotion and give you feedback loops, right? And train you to be a good person. And again, I will just revisit in one of the, the, the previous episodes, I was talking about the um, a pearl of great price and Joseph Smith writing about Satan's proposal, right? That Satan's proposal to God was that he would get everyone into prison because he would make, uh, into prison, sorry. Whoa, Freudian slip. He would get everyone into heaven um, because uh, because he would make sure that everybody was good, right? And so I, I feel like that's sort of where we're veering with the churches and the cybernetics and the digital media, right? Is is are you engineering everyone to be good? And then we, we, we know that just as with, you know, so many institutions of influence like there are always issues too of um predatory aspects in 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 these settings like i'm not exclusively christian i mean uh, broadly but th there are issues with with people using power over others um and children in these settings so like there's a lot to there's a lot to think about um 
So then I have a map of Jim Bechthold um, and his uh, connected to Ocean Crossroads Church. Again, it's interesting. There's a lot with oceans. And I would I would be open to people who understand a little bit more about the esoterics. Um, like Ocean Protocol, um, this ocean, uh, Blue Meridian is the big venture capital fund that the Balmer Group is behind and Druck, Druck and Miller. There's, there's stuff, in, I, and it could just be the wave formations, the sine waves and the materiality of it. In, in, but I don't know, maybe it's Atlantis, who knows? But there's something about the ocean aspect. So um, the, the, so, okay, so let, let's see. Um, so globalized trade was the backdrop of my childhood, but I'll admit that until recently, I'd never really stopped to reflect on where Folger's coffee beans came from or how the expectation of a properly caffeinated morning shaped brutal US economic and foreign policies in Latin America. It's not the type of thing you're expected to think about growing up in a corporate enclave on a quarter acre plot laid out over fallow farm fields. I've been thinking a lot about supply chains lately because my research indicates an economic shift is underway, one where labor and productivity will be reimagined as an ongoing process of digital brand curation. Moving forward, unless we choose otherwise, we will be the commodities of the knowledge economy. We will be the coffee beans, but our value will not be in caffeine and aroma, but badges and micro-credentials. In this brave new world, financial speculators, multinational corporations, media outlets, and social welfare programs aim to channel our daily activities onto virtual assembly lines, where vast quantities of data will be aggregated, machine read, and used to fraudulently predict our futures. This process, writ large, will inform vast predatory impact investment markets, pursued even over encrypted data using MIT's Enigma software. We're told to welcome this opportunity to own and sell access to our data through self-sovereign digital identity systems. And while I am not anti-privacy, somehow reducing my life to a digital brand for sale to the highest bidder holds no appeal. I don't want to be paid in blockchain tokens for my social media activity or attention, not for media meditating or improving myself as promoted by the high vibe network. <laughs> Why many feel secure digital identities are a great answer, I must say Tim Berners-Lee's pitch for pods, personal online data stores, leaves me cold. Will we all be reduced to the contents of our pods? Sounds rather grim. Sounds kind of like the Matrix, right? So this is, um, this is about the attention economy. Um, I guess this was high vibe. Captive attention. Blockchain networks can grab and keep users' attention through gamification. <laughs> They grab users' attention with game-like features, progress tracking through leaderboards, and using virtual and augmented reality platforms. There are incentives for healthy behaviors. One study shows sedentary adults are two times as likely to go walking when offered a cash incentive for participation. Blockchain networks can reward users with cryptocurrency for participating in wellness ex experiences or reaching personal growth goals. Imagine a blockchain network that pays you to meditate. Are you ready for the future of wellness, right? And so these are all the things that, again, just to like keep beating on the drum, like when, when people are like, Allison, why are you not with the unified program? And why are you questioning blockchain? It's like, well, I already did all the research before any of this happened with the health stuff. And I had a very clear position that it wasn't right. Like, I don't want to live in your freedom cell if what you're going to do is gamify like 
that I drink more carrot juice and meditate. Like, and I'm not saying either of those things wouldn't be fine in and of themselves if it was my choice and I decided, but I don't want to be in anybody else's blockchain game, right? And that's, that's, that's the core of it for me. And I knew that all along. So, you know, um, yeah, yeah, 2019. So surely there must be another option that isn't advancing the interests of tech oligarchs. I'm 50 years old. I'm older than that now. My brand has evolved over time. I'm a different person from the high school kid earning pocket money folding polo shirts at the mall. My worldview continues to evolve. I'm not even the same person I was three years ago. But will my child get the chance to change of their own free will? Or with the digital corporate mindset assembly lines that are systematically being swapped out for authentic social engagement reinforce brands of youthful selves before they can be challenged by broader worldviews and experiences that could change us in fundamental ways? Will generations be caught up in feedback loops and harnessed to foster consumption, fragmentation, obfuscation, surveillance? Will there be economic options other than to sell our digitized selves? The time to ask these questions and refine alternatives is now. And if you want to get in the right frame of mind, consider the question. To consider the question, I can set, <laughs> suggest grabbing a copy of M.T. Anderson's feed. <laughs> Spoiler, one of the main characters, a homeschool student, actively confuses her branding by intentionally shopping for and trying out random unrelated items. And when she faces a health crisis towards the end of the book, no one will invest in her health. She has become uninsurable because she doesn't have a clear brand. This is echoed in the image below, a slide from a 2017 talk by Vinay Gupta on blockchain identity. In this new world, as long as someone will ensure you, you exist. And then I have a screenshot. It says, uh, this is from Vinay Gupta's slide share, how blockchain can change our world. Um, and again, Gupta, I understand he is the, the CEO of Materium, the internet of agreements with smart contracting, but he was a key player in consensus with the smart contract layer. Facts are useless, give me insurance. Seas of little insurance and fact bundles are glue. They could hold together a future society without needing a single all-embracing personal profile or without an unrealistic belief in anonymity. As long as someone will ensure you, you exist. Procter & Gamble has long been a leader in supply chain management, industrial efficiencies, branding, and the construction of consumer markets. They've cultivated partnerships with government researchers at Los Alamos and Sandia National Labs to refine production capabilities. I recently found out from Yasha Levine's important new book, Surveillance Valley, that Eisenhower's first Secretary of Defense, Neil McElroy, had been the president of Procter & Gamble at the time. In 1958, McElroy, a very good salesman, initiated ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which evolved into DARPA, which, of course, spawned the Internet. Procter & Gamble deals in data. A 2011 report prepared by McKinsey states that in their corporate relationships, they use data as currency. Their goal is to be the most digitally enabled company in the world, and they are a mammoth company touching over 4 billion consumers daily. They are working with Strive in Cincinnati, which is also interestingly home to Hobson's. Hobson's is a huge source of data. It owns Naviance, the data gathering platform that elicits strength surveys from middle schoolers and offers college quote unquote guidance to high school students, as well as Starfish, a platform that manages retention in higher ed. 
Hobson's, in turn, is owned by the Daily Mail and Telegraph in the UK, who has investments in Innovation Edge. Innovation Edge helped to launch Amply, the pre-K identity app in Cape Town, which is the proof of concept for social impact investing on blockchain. Procter & Gamble is working with consensus on blockchain social impact initiatives. Cincinnati seems to be a massive net of advertising, sales, branding, tech, blockchain, social services, and big data. Collective Shift is also active in Columbus with an LRNG pilot and a Global Scholars Diploma, a competency-based education initiative sponsored by regional industry backers. LRNG's new partnership with Southern New Hampshire University makes it appear likely that as early childhood investments are being made on the cradle end, impact capital will be headed towards the career end of the pipeline as well. The map below lays it all out in the interconnections as well as the link between Hobson's, SIIA, and Project Unicorn, the interoperable database that will create the data lakes to enable the cost offsets. And I don't know if I can, I can't make this bigger. Unfortunately, I don't think, can I? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, it's it's kind of blurry. But this is this is the, the map. A lot, you know, most of these maps got lost except for the screenshots. But it shows the relationship of Strive Together to Procter & Gamble, um, uh, to uh, Jim Bechthold and the church, to these... Uh, you know, National Computing Lab, Sandia, and Los Alamos, right? And Los Alamos at the time, I didn't realize their connection to the uh, Human Genome Project, right? Or into the Manhattan Project and, and that. Uh, the Auto ID Lab, so supply chain tracking. Uh, the link to consensus. At the time, I didn't really know what consensus was, but it's a really central feature in the tokenized economy map that I'm doing. Uh, Lubin, um, and Lubin, you know, he helped co-found Ethereum with Buterin. Uh, and then it goes on to Hobson's and it sort of lays out, um, you know, again, there's going to be a push for college and career readiness, even though they know the plan is that traditional four-year college is going to go away and it's going to be stackable credentials. But they need for people to believe that they're on a pipeline, on a pathway. That's the cybernetics requires all of that. Um, so Hobson's is connected through that. Um, they have connections to Innovation Edge and Amply and these IXO Foundation Impact Tokens. So, um, okay. And then, uh, let's see. Schools can't do it all. Let Columbus Council World Affairs help. The Global Scholars Diploma. And um, that, you know, th then it has all the logos of who's involved. And, of course, you know, Prestige. You've got Harvard and the Council on Foreign Relations and Gallup and... Uh, I'm not sure I can't, I'm not sure what EF is. I don't, um, but then you've also got Battelle, which is again, managed by the U.S. Department of Energy Labs, Honda, uh, various universities, nationwide insurance, because of course you can't exist without someone to insure you. Um, so again, you know, as a parent, you imagine global scholars diploma, right? Like most people like who aren't more broadly aware of where this is all going they they would presume like oh wow I want to sign my kid up for this this you know program and to to make them more you know fitting into this new world but it isn't I mean literally it is making them an energy unit in this thermodynamic economy um it's late, so I'll bring this to a close. In case this all seems a bit far-fetched, I'll just say that people are starting to pay more attention to my Jeremiah ads lately. It may have to do with the media attention Shoshana Zuboff of Harvard has been receiving for her book, Surveillance Capitalism. 
Um, I really loved her long read in the Frankfurter Allgemeine from 2016, which you can read here, but have cooled somewhat after watching her participation in Wharton Professor and Blockchain and Gamification Expert Kevin Werbach's conference after the digital tornado in the fall of 2017. It felt like she was set up to be the good cop in that production. Obviously, she's a Harvard professor with a literal seat at the table, so how much of a dissident can she actually be? Nevertheless, she has bolstered my credibility, and I appreciate that, and I will finish with a transcribed statement Joseph Tarot, a Penn Annenberg professor of communications, delivered following Zuboff's presentation at that 2017 Digital Tornado Conference. It confirms what I have laid out regarding Internet of Things branding and the ways government policies and human capital management are being inappropriately influenced by powerful corporate interests. Why are we not all shouting this from the rooftops? What exactly are we waiting for? Okay, so, and again, this comes home to roost for me because, um, uh, because it's pen, right? Like, this is my backyard. I have a responsibility. Like, I, I think Cliff was saying there earlier on, like, look where you are, look where you are. Like, I happen to have an abundance of this stuff because of where I am. Like, I have this history, the history and the mythology of Philadelphia and, you know, er, our founding fathers and governance and whatever and the domination culture and the alternative histories and Penn is really, really woven into this. So, um, you know, Zuboff is clearly, you know, at the time I was still more naive about like who these front people were and, you know, they, they always want to give you the heroes, give you the people to say like, oh, they're the one who knows the thing, like who knows the right way to do it, right? And they're never that because when they're put out there, they're there for a reason. And Zuboff was that. So, um, so this is from her, uh, let's see, I think that this was actually, so she gave a talk at this event in 2017 at Wharton. Uh, with Werbach, uh, and she's kind of giving her shtick about surveillance capitalism. Of course, the surveillance capitalism people never talk about impact finance, right? Um, and, and speculation and derivatives trading on children. Um, and, and so there were respondents to her presentation and another presentation. And this is a quote from one of the respondents. Um, they both reminded me of two industry experiences I had directly relating to this that will lead to a comment about the nature of policy. I was at an industry conference about a year and a half ago, two years ago maybe, and the peop and people were talking. It was a conference on the use of the Internet of Things in business, particularly in retailing. And one of these people at the conference who was an executive at WPP, one of the major advertising holding companies, said, we have to treat people like a frog in boiling water. We have to figure out a way to make them slowly get used to the idea of what we're doing because otherwise they'll resist. There's this myth. I think it is a myth that if you put a frog in water that's boiling, it will jump out. But if you put it in the water and it slowly boils, it will get used to it. He didn't want to kill his audiences, but he wanted people to get used to the ideas they were formulating. Not too long after he spoke, a researcher for one of the big advertising holding companies got up and showed slides with trend lines that by 2024, half of Americans are going to have a chip in their arm so that when they walk down a supermarket aisle, the supermarket will know that they feel nervous when they lift a product up and they might be able to get rid of that nervousness by lowering the price directly for that thing and thereby know how to sell the product. He then added that he thought by 2050, everybody in the United States would have this chip. The first guy, I felt bad for him. I didn't put his name in the book. The second person, because it was online, I figured it was fair game. Apparently, they've taken that slide off. But the larger point that I'm trying to make here is that there are industrial logics that are taking place that really relate to a kind of policy that we've 
been that has been underplayed in the last couple of days. It has been implicit, but I still think I'd like to foreground it, which is corporate marketing and commercial policy. Companies have ideas about where they're going, and it's networked systems of companies, particularly in the marketing arena, that are shaping the kinds of things we've been talking about in the last couple of days. They also shape government policy in very strong ways, and I think it's terribly important to realize how these things interconnect with one another. A year after the tornado piece came out in 1998, Procter & Gamble had a conference called FAST, and it was in Cincinnati in their headquarters, and it stands for Futures of Advertising Stakeholders. And I was at that conference, and they invited their competitors. And Unilever was there, which is pretty amazing, and a whole lot of people from ad agencies and media buying companies and stuff like that. And the goal of the conference was to get the internet workable for Procter & Gamble. They didn't think that the internet was acceptable to them at that time. It was too slow, and it wasn't viable for commercials. They didn't know what the metrics were, and they wanted to set up a way to get that set up. They invited Steve Case to give a talk, and Steve Case, the head of AOL, at lunch, and he freaked a lot of people out because during the talk he said, Americans do not want broadband. P&G wanted broadband, see, to show the commercials. He said, Americans don't want broadband, and they don't care about broadband because AOL, and he didn't say this, because AOL was really dependent on the idea of dial-up. But from that time on, P&G, which had already started the interactive advertising, it was then called Internet Advertising Bureau, really decided, together with the other companies, to set the policies that a lot of people the past couple of sessions have been talking about, The notions of personal assistance, the notion of AI, the notion of how advertising messages are going to be conversational, what I would call conversational advertising based on who we are. The industrial constructions of audiences is not just an issue of government policy, it is an issue of interconnection of government policy with the logics and desires of the industries that relate to them. And that was November 2017. So, uh, yeah. So I guess what they weren't realizing is that it wasn't just about commercials, right? Uh, Let me see here. It's not just about commercials. Um, P&G needed broadband (laughs) because we were moving into the simulation, right? Like the new, the digital simulation. We were, we were moving on and they were about supply chain. And the new, the new supply chain is gonna be digital goods, digital goods and services and the globotics and this new virtual economy that they're, they're training the future generations to accept. And so like now it's not gonna be just broadband, right? Like it's gonna be faster and faster and um, you know, enough to power all the wearables and figure out where to store all the data. And they have all the logistics. But, you know, Procter & Gamble isn't, I'm, you know, I'm just understanding it's, it's not just a consumer products company. It's not just a storytelling soap opera company. It's not just a defense contracting company. Um, I mean, the Internet of Things is what Web3 will run on, is these interconnected sensor networks. And Procter & Gamble has been long standing with um, with MIT, with these institutions of power, with the government computing labs, um, with DARPA, like McElroy since the beginning, right? And so like when you pick up your Jif peanut butter, you don't really understand what all goes into that, like what's behind that. I didn't as a kid. I mean, Procter & Gamble paid my college tuition. You know, Procter & Gamble, <clears throat> you know, they sent us a Christmas box every year. Like my dad had a stable career there. And as I mentioned, um, I think in one of the other podcasts, when you're indebted to 
these corporate interests, you just don't think about what it really means. And um, Mark Ruffalo has the the, docu- uh, the film uh, Dark Waters about the the DuPont poisoning of the town in West Virginia. And you know it's interesting because I think there's some underlying messages there that I'm kind of sketchy about, like this long-term medical health monitoring that was built into the insurance payout there that I have some questions about. But the reality of that film is like they they finally got the the people who had been poisoned intentionally by DuPont some justice in terms of money and health care. Um, but they had to be tested for the presence of these toxicities in their bodies. And none of the people wanted to believe that that DuPont would do that to them. Like they were a company town. And and so there's this disconnect between what's happening and what we can actually process and see. And, you know, I don't know why I have like the framework to see some of this stuff, but I'm just gonna um, like just go over and, and do a little walking around this map. If there's still some people, people here yeah okay there's there's some people here looking so this is this is the map that I've been making around the tokenomics the token economy let me see am I able to yeah so I have block science here at the middle um and uh let me see if is this comes up yeah so they're they're this data hub right of the digital twin they're they're doing this simulation modeling and uh you know, it's, these are fairly recent companies, right? It, it just was founded in 2020, and uh, it was it was founded Michael Zargam, and it says also Chris Chris Frazier and Nick Hiranet, and they're doing the data science for the simulation modeling in in the metaverse. And so I spent some time. I, I found their SEC filing uh, from when they set up their company that was filed in November of 2021, and it actually it had the uh, the listings of where they were and they were like people's ad- like addresses <laughs> of the three people so the mailing address was laurel springs new jersey which is south jersey not far from me there's philadelphia and this little pin over here is brandywine road in laurel springs new jersey which is you know somebody's split level house with a truck and a one-car garage you know like you know it's just somebody's regular middle class house there in south jersey so that's that's the sc filing data um, here's here's Chris. He's the CEO and co-founder. He was formerly with uh, uh, Cadent, which is uh, a data business intelligence data, um, and it was it was based in Philadelphia. Before that, he was at Comcast, and Comcast's headquarters here is here. Um, Nick Hiranet, he was he was one of the other folks. He's the chief operating officer uh, for Block Science. Before that, he was with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in marine design. Um, here also in Philadelphia. And so his, uh, the address that he has on the SEC filing is in South Philly at 20th and Carpenter. <laughs> so you've got like a two-story row house. Now, now when you look at block science and you see like what they're really about, it's like, it's incredible just to think that it's attached to just people's, you know, homes. And then, and then we've got Michael Zargam. Again, he came out of Penn Engineering, PhD in convex optimization. So again, Taylorism, supreme Taylorism of the entire world. Uh, his his PhD dissertation research um, was the next generation of network science, and it was funded by the Office of Naval Research and uh, the Army Research Office. So this is all defense military funding. Uh, while he was there, he was also doing consulting on humans, networks, technology, and data. So, and I'm pretty sure in here at some point it said maybe he was doing some work with Wharton, like doing some teaching over at the Wharton School. Um, and so he, 
like it seems like I'm trying to figure out if he has a connection to Arizona State University. Like it's hard for me to imagine that he doesn't because he has his address again, modest home in Tempe. Um, and Tempe is, is where Arizona State University is. I think I saw an article that said that he his wife's family is from there, but it, it, it seems too coincidental that, that you would be in Tempe and you would not be, Black Science would not have a relationship with, with Michael Crow's university. So um, let me just see. So this is the, the labs itself uh, about us. You know, they're working on problem solving data science. I'm not sure if it actually has the like who we are like in the about, but when you when you look up uh, block science, it's you know it's a it's an international group. It's definitely an international group. So th this map is about sort of cybernetic tokenomics, and um, you know I'm I'm such a nerd. I'm gonna just tell you a little bit of a story. So he's he's working. He's a partner with this token engineering commons. Um, let me see, can I zoom in here? Yeah. So uh, in the Token Engineering Commons Partnership Ecosystem, Block Science is in here um, with the Token Engineering Group, SourceCred, which is a reputation management, CADCAD, which is simulation modeling, OneHive, which is one of the use cases for um, uh, these DAO uh, voting programs and then the common stack which is griff green and this is all of this digital public goods building out the digital public goods ecosystem so um so he's connected and so when i was out in tucson uh i, I wanted to go to kochi stronghold uh, because we jason and i went there the last time last the last time we were there but we did too many things that day and by the time we got to Cochise Stronghold which is where Cochise and Geronimo and the Apache sort of held out against the U.S. military for 20 years in the Dragoon Mountains it was dark and I told my friend Drew if I come out to present like I really want to go back to those mountains and so um, the day that I went let me see where is it yeah so the day we're driving out there um I'm a nerd and it probably if Jason was in charge of the radio, he would have like good music on. But I was like, well, let's listen to things about the common stack and the data commons. <laughs> um, and so we're listening and as we're as we're listening to the stuff about the commons, I mentioned earlier about Sybils and this idea of the, the Sybil resistance. This I so what what the common stack is doing is they're they're pitching this idea of uh, public goods this is like get these gitcoin grants here uh, they're giving out all this money they've got this giant lake of matching funds from the billionaire class and they're saying oh we will you can put some proposals out to us to build out web3 and we will vote on the best proposals and so the um the proposals that we're putting together you can have a vote um, but you get more money if you have more people supporting you. So you get way more money if you have 100 people give you each $1 than if you have one person give you $100. But the civil resistance thing is that you need to make sure that the one person with the $100 doesn't sneak around and make 99 fake agents to make them look like they're 100 different people. And so the digital identity is part of what they call civil resistance. And it's kind of like know your customer. And I think in the same way that 9-11 opened the door to know your customer, like to require a validated digital identity because of terrorism, um, that the, the um, here, let me move it over to the picture in the picture. The, um, the, uh, 
the civil resistance is the same thing. Like we need to know your digital identity to make sure that you're using your tokens properly and you're not pulling a fast one on us, right? But in and of itself, it reinforces this idea that you need to, to live in the Panopticon as a digital identity. So we're driving down Route 10 in rural Arizona, in Southern Arizona, and there's just really not much out there. And we literally, um, <laughs> we're on the road so we're coming out of Tucson, we're going down Highway 10, and literally there's an exit, North Sybil Road, <laughs> which is like an interesting, so you can see Cochise Stronghold, which is where we're going, and North Sybil Road is on the way. There's like a big highway sign, there's not that many exits, and I'm like, oh, well that's kind of interesting. We're listening about Sybil resistance. So the stuff about um, Sybil attacks, um, you can see here at the bottom of S-Y-B-I-L, which is how it was spelled, um, that's, they, they're using Sybil attack and it's based on this uh, woman with multiple personality disorder in the book and movie about her. Um, but actually, the Sybils were prophetesses in the classical era. They were, um, if you're a little bit of bumping around my husband's, it, it's trash night, so he's, he's getting <laughs> the trash, trash out. Um, so the Sybils were these classical prophetesses and uh, the oracles or whatever. Um, and then later, I guess they were incorporated into the church in some way as because some of them had said that they were, um, uh, had foreseen the arrival of Christ. And so I guess Michelangelo painted Old Testament prophets and the Sybils in the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So so that's Sybils. So so we go and we, we go to Cochise Stronghold. I'm going to just show you some pictures here because I think this is really important in terms of understanding the difference in approaches to sustainability and right relationship with nature. So uh, Geronimo is here on, on the right uh, with the Apache, uh, the Chiricahua Apache, and they were in the, these, these mountain, mountainous areas for 20 years in the mid-19th century fighting. Um, actually, they sent the Buffalo Soldiers because most people didn't want to go to the, the Sonoran Desert, and so they sent the Black Soldiers. And... Um, the, Cochise uh, was the chief. He actually died in the mountains and he is buried in an unknown location. Um, and then Geronimo and the Apache, they were sent to Oklahoma and to Fort Sill. Um, and so there is Geronimo's grave. Now I will say, and I, I can touch on this later, but actually, and so he died, I think in 1909, he was supposedly converted to Dutch reformed Christianity. Um, and the person who converted him and presided over his burial actually ended up um, being a co-founder of the Wycliffe Bible translation thing, which is complicated and interesting. But then 10 years later, evidently, it is, is understood that Prescott Bush, the patriarch of the Bush family, um, stole from the grave, Geronimo's grave, I guess at Fort Sill, his skull and took it to Yale for the Skull and Bone Society. And then in, in 2018, on the 100th anniversary, like there was a call that, 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 that all of Geronimo's bones be repatriated to his sacred lands. So um, this is this guy, uh, Leonard Livingston. He was a, a missionary to the uh, Apache and Comanche in Oklahoma. He was the one that had the relationship with Geronimo. He was a partnership, partners with William Cameron Townsend, who was a missionary uh, in like, you know, 
well, he lived from 1896 to 1982, so he lived a pretty long time. But like in the post-war era, he created this Wycliffe Bible Translators and Summer of in, uh, Institute of Linguistics. Uh, and Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, was a scholastic theologian who was the first person to do the Bible in the vernacular. And he was he actually had an emphasis on logic. So it's actually quite perfect when you imagine overlaying deontic logic onto the world. And uh, l- let's see, Livingstone. Yeah. And so, and then the Wycliffe Bible program, the Linguistics Institute had a spinoff in uh, the Dallas area called the International Linguistics Center that was funded by Nelson Bunker Hunt. And the Hunt oil family, um, Nelson Bunker Hunt had got a lot of money in, well, I think it was, it ended up not working out, but Libyan oil. And then he later tried to corner the silver reserves market. And that also didn't work out for him. But he's very, very influential in Dallas. And his, the larger Hunt family, uh, is connected to the Lyda Hill, uh, Lyda Hill uh, Philanthropies, which is funding Pegasus Park, which is the EdTech Biotech Center. So the International Linguistic Center, he gave Nelson Bunker Hunt, who was also a member of the John Birch Society, he donated the land for the center, which still exists. And they're all about linguistics. And you have to understand that the computation is very much about the linguistic aspect. And they, they've actually developed this software, again, ostensibly for Bibles, but um, it's also collecting all of the, the linguistic information. And one of the early supporters of this campus uh, among the elite of Dallas was the head of Texas Instruments. And again, they have this early level of computing and the computing structure and the grammar is feeding into the AI and then also the cosmology of the indigenous worldview because they would actually go into the Amazon jungles and carve out uh, airstrips um, and supposedly to collect up the, the language information, but then these airstrips were used for other purposes like scouting resources in remote areas and also being used for sort of military, covert military ops. Um, so this is all kind of related to the Geronimo story in terms of like uh, Leonard Livingstone was in this mix and he was the pastor to to Cochise. And then, so here's the New York Times article from 2009 uh, saying like that they were suing to get his skull back, right? And I don't know how commonly it's understood <laughs> that, that this happened, but to me that this is like one of these very clear things like that that was wrong. Like this was wrong. This grave robbing, this sacred transition was terrible. And and it's very much related to, I think, our relationship to the sacred, to the environment, to cultural legacy on on given sacred landscapes. And then and then it turns out later that that Yale ends up being a center of the environmental movement. So I'll just show you here a couple images. Um, beautiful rocky area. I, I I got over my fear of uh, driving on these back dirt roads. Jason, it was like if Jason had done it, it would be no big deal. But like I was stressed because I had a blown out tire in the rental car over on my summer vacation in in Taos. So I was like really stressed. But we got to this beautiful area, and a lot of this is volcanic with the beautiful rock formations and um, cacti and um, you know these. Uh, you know, it's just beautiful. Like there, there's me and Jason, you know, it was a beautiful day. Um, holes in rocks and springs. Like you can see how this would be uh, a perfect place 
for counterinsurgent asymmetrical warfare. Like the U.S. Army was not getting into this. This was their land, and they knew it. And um, it was it was it was perfect for this sort of engagement. And so all of all of this, like we were we were we we felt very lucky to be able to go there and spend time there. I left a, a, an intention on one of the rocks in a dried spring. Uh, I picked out all the pink rocks. And then this orange was actually from the Stewart Observatory on the University of Arizona campus, which is this early observatory. And a lot of Southern Arizona, have they have telescopes on sacred lands. So, um, and I have a piece of phosphorite and um, some cedar and I think manzanilla um, around there. So that's the intention that we set just to sort of acknowledge those past harms and to ask for healing and for that it be made better at some point. So, um, you know, as, as we're looking at all of the simulation modeling in the game, like there's some stuff that just isn't, doesn't fit into that narrative. So I, I have here on the map the, um, the Skull and Bone Society uh, that dates back to the 1830s. Uh, here, here it is. This is again Time Magazine, uh, and you know Time Magazine is acknowledging Prescott Bush digging up that grave with the Bones Men in 1918, right? And we just we're just gleeful about it. People are just like, yeah, what are you going to do about it, right? And they they put it in what's called the tomb. So symbolically, like this is something that has to be made right, um, it, and and it hasn't. Like it's been in all of these magazines, and it has to be made right, and it isn't. So look at look at this, and again, it's Greek revival architecture. And I will say, a lot of the tokenization that's coming, they're looking back to um, Athens. They're looking back to classical Athens and this Athenian city-state democracy. So it's an interesting architecture there. It's very enclosed and inward-looking. Um, you know, again, the legacy of the skull and bone system. Society, uh, and again, we've just got we've got Geronimo. Uh, so the other bit about Prescott Bush, you know, besides the skull and bones, that he he was an investment banker with the Harriman brothers, and he held uh, positions on boards, including the Vanadium Corporation of America. Um, so the vanadium was used in the uranium processing, and the Vanadium Corporation did the early work uh, to find these uh the the uranium deposits on the colorado plateau and a lot of the people who mined that were navajo miners who were poisoned and with radioactivity i think on purpose uh as part of the manhattan project so prescott bush and if you imagine that really the radioactive isotopes of the cold war biophysics era were related to track and trace right like sort of the early uh the early biophysics the early rfid chips uh here is an article. It talks about the raw materials from the Manhattan Project on the Colorado Plateau. And then, um, uh, let's see. And then this is an image from the Rifle Heritage Center. Uh, in 1923, U.S. Vanadium opened a mine on Rifle Creek, uh, east of uh, Rifle, where the city's maintenance facility. Uh, vanadium was initially used as an alloy for steel, uh, but it played a vital role in both world wars and in processing uranium in the Manhattan Project. And it operated in, through 1958. Um, so the, the, this, the vanadium companies, they were working through the Cold War to do all of the missile projects. Um, so the reason I'm bringing all of this up in the tokenomics and the simulation modeling is that, so Skull and Bones is based in Yale, right? Um, Evelyn Hutchinson was the uh, 
father of the ecological evolutionary movement and climate change. And so he didn't arrive to Yale until like 10 years after the skull was installed at the Skull and Bone Society. But it's important to understand that he was a zoologist and he was the one that was meshing uh, mathematical concepts with environmentalism around specifically climate change. And this was in um, throughout much of the 20th century. Uh, he, here he is, there's a picture of him uh, with his butterfly net. He was a zoologist and he, he was about the, the mathematical modeling. And what, what he actually did was he got uh, radioactive isotopes and dumped them in a Connecticut pond so that he could look at the metabolism of this niche uh, water-based ecosystem. And, and it's something that, uh, I talked about in the pod in the presentation with Jason and Leo on atomic ecology, but he was the mentor to Howard Odom, and we had talked earlier about energy um, and those those mapping flow diagrams of the steady state, and so uh, you know the, the environmental accounting was what Howard Odom did, and he you know Hutchinson was working on this. Uh, environmental balance. There's the picture of Lindsley Pond where he dumped the radioactive isotopes. And so I feel like we're still just recovering from all of this, this legacy. And in this book, Signals and Boundaries, they're talking a lot about um, the, the e environmental ecosystem niches and the system engineering and the balancing. So the complex adaptive systems uh, the environmental niches, the engineering of the environment. Um, Odom, beyond working in energy, he was also an ecological engineer. Uh, so the looking at the landscape as an engineering problem, uh, looking at the world as an engineering problem that can be gamified, that can be manipulated, um, where the rules apply to some but not others, right? You can steal someone's skull, you can poison people with radiation. Um, but if what you're saying is you're doing it for Uncle Sam, then that's fine. If you're doing it to like consolidate power, that's fine. Um, so it was sort of on the way back from the Cochise stronghold that I was actually listening to uh, another podcast with Michael Zar Zargum, this one about uh, algorithms as policy, uh, DAO rewards and system assemblage. And it was it was in conjunction with the, these groups, the Governots, the Taoist and the Token Engineering Academy. And so, you know, we're, we're listening to this and we're pulling into Tucson after having this amazing experience again in Cochise Stronghold, like this amazing landscape. And you know, listening to this gamification of the world, listening to their plans to use military technology to do military, to do simulation modeling, to shape us through cyber physical systems, socio-technical systems, through token transfers, to frame it as democracy, to frame it as lifelong learning, to frame it as human capital improvement and optimization when it's anything but like, and I, and I, I probably would not have seen that talk, the cybernetics talk, um, or the policy, the algorithmic policy making talk if if I hadn't gone to Cozy Stronghold. And so I feel like the the civil uh, sign there, the, the understanding, uh, the, the policy, and in this, he specifically talked about the metagame, which I opened with, and the metagame and source cred and the way in which 
your uh, the, the the maps of your online contributions in gig economy workspaces would be modeled and your place in the world would be determined like how you were included would be determined through that level of modeling and then how that interfaces with what's coming with the new educational model so here's here's the metagame so this is i learned about metagame and source cred uh from uh, let, let me see where is source cred. Uh, do I have game B? Oh yeah. So I do have a little bit about game B. So metagame uh, here, they're talking about metagame with this green pill episode. And later on, you'll see, I, I made an offering of some green pill socks that Jason gave to me both at Arizona state and um, uh, at the, the, uh, Udall park in, in, in Tucson. And then this is, this is the, uh, the, the game B. So this is their answer to neoliberalism is this, this idea you have a self-organizing system. Uh, it was pitched by Jim Rutt who came out of MIT with a focus in cognitive science. And he worked at the Santa Fe Institute and he developed big chain database blockchain, which later became evolved into ocean protocol. And he identifies money as signals. So money is like the grammar is the communication. And he uses those signals to manage smart games with genetic algorithms. And, and the signals all have, some of them happen through money and some of them happen through this liquid democracy. And um, in this Game B program, he co-founded it with Jordan Hall. And Jordan Hall, his uh, expertise was in video compression and creation of DAOs. Um, and so the video compression software, that's what we need for the simulation modeling, right? If we're going to live in the metaverse, we have to figure out how to like make it happen in a, in a way that is the files have to all be compressed and stored. Now, he was also involved in this neurohacker collaborative with his, I think she ended up being his wife, Vanessa Hall, who, who frames herself as a futurist uh, neurohacking storyteller. And so this is all about sort of these collective minds. Um, and they're applying in the gaming, in the smart games and genetic algorithms, they're applying that as if they were financial markets. Now, Jim Rutt got his start in network solutions, which was uh, identifying the domain management systems. I think they got the, the sole people to get the contract from the NSF. Um, and I mentioned that the big, big DB ocean protocol like became ocean protocol. So um, money as signal tokens. And for, again, the answer to neoliberalism is tokenized cybernetics. And I talked about this construct a little bit on the, the tokenizing the commons. But uh, uh, Balaji uh, Srinvasan, uh, this idea of the network state, he was talking about a ledger of record, right? They want everything to have a permanent ledger of record and to use use voting with this Robin Hansen's futarchy um, that you have these hierarchical votings, these proxy voting systems. They get run through smart contracts with rules that aligned to fitness, what we decide is a good quality, right? A moral economy, um, a, something for the common good as they have defined it in the smart contract layer. You run it through the, the simulations and then you work it for fitness and then you keep the cycle going. And then eventually through these systems of iteration of voting layers, protocols, re over and over in the ant computer, you you start moving towards the Christogenesis convergence, and I think that that the game B has to be understood at within the context of emergent behavior, and the emergence is the singularity or some sort of like human machine 
uh, new form of existence. And then this is just the bottom of this map. It gets kind of interesting here. Um, so we've got game B. This is just the bottom half with Jordan Hall. Uh, he's also involved in something called civiums. So again, you've got the Athenian civic um, idea of token exchange. Uh, they're talking about meta psychotechnology because again, remember with Pavaleksha, the idea is collective consciousness and mind sharing. Um, and, and you would do this within your halon, right? Within your teaming. And, you know, one of the other founding members was Eric Weinstein of Teal Capital. Um, and, and he was a mathematician working on unity theory. He, you know, he's the intellectual dark web guy with, with Brett, right? The evolutionary biologist, right? And, and so they both came up with promoting this idea of game B on Rogan. So you've got neurohacking, you've got Rogan, you have game B, tokenization, collectivization, mind sharing, emergence, um, the emergence model is kind of related to the game B and it's connected to this center for integral wisdom. And I think Sebs had talked about this a little bit, this Ken Wilber guy. Um, it was founded by, uh, Mark Gaffney, who is a former rabbi and a mystic, but also had a long history of like sex crimes against people. Like he was sort of a, a chronic sexual predator. Um, and, and one of the people who facilitated the Center for Integral Wisdom um, was a John Mackey. Uh, John Mackey was evidently the co-founder of the original Whole Foods in Austin when it was just a local cooperative food store. And he became libertarian and really fixated on conscious capitalism. And he uh, held some conferences at Esalen uh, in 2012 around conscious capitalism. So, um, and then one of the other pieces with this, um, with the Emergence Project, this guy, Daniel Schmachtenberger, who I can't find out a lot about. He has some early history and then recent, he's like one of these think tanky people, um, like, you know, thought leaders that we're supposed to all believe in. And he's working on emergence and consilience. Um, this guy Schmachtenberger, he actually grew up in this small town in Iowa, uh, where they had relocated this, um, uh, transcendentalist medi Vedic meditation group from Goleta, the, the Maharishi International University, uh, had relocated from Goleta, California in the 70s to Fairfield, Iowa, and created this transcendental meditation community where Schmachtenberger and his, his brother's parents lived. And so they grew up like homeschool kids in this um, meditative community with Vedic architecture. And um, so yeah, we have all of the, the different kinds of convergence in Holland. So I know that this is like sort of stretching out, but we've, we've got this like domination, like culture going on that we've, we've lost the plot. Like John Trudell said, like we need to get clear on who we are and what we are. And, um, you know, and I think for me, it, like the Cochise stronghold, Geronimo Skull, Yale, environmentalism, this idea of engineered, minds engineered economies towards a convergence um it's just, it's just all very very concerning so that's that's game b and the meta game is connected to all of that and um and then source cred is this idea of how you are online, how you participate, how you comment, what you offer into the community in terms of coding or materials or content um, is distributed as cred or grain in this 
um, these closed systems. And so those are what's building up your digital twin. And what I, I would like to just say is that, you know, I think there are certain really strong narratives out there, right? Like, um, oh my gosh, uh, ESG investing, it's uh, the Marxists are after BlackRock uh, and, you know, they're going to use our credit card and tell us to eat crickets at the grocery store and these stories. And, well, I'm not saying that there's not something to that down the road. Um, I think it's far more likely that this idea of a digital twin um, and your social credit score as a worker will start to come in much earlier through these online working platforms, right? Through the online learning platforms. And people have been conditioned to just accept that it's normal, even the resistance, right? Because like how many people who pulled their kids out of regular public school during lockdowns ended up using some sort of online curriculum, right? Probably the vast majority are, are you, you know, some sort of blended learning that had a lot of technology involved. So like they know that the tracking of our reputation within this digital milieu is coming, right? And then that's supposed to feel normal. Like we're like, oh, well, we had a LinkedIn, this, this blockchain source cred thing. And look, like maybe we get some tokens out of it or we get some money or we get some stake in what happens in our community. And that's good. But I would just say, like, remember that that decyclic, directed acyclic graph, like, do we want to create a world like Geronimo was trying, was defending their way of life against this new, like, program, right? The new program of progress um, to try to hold that ground, right? And and then, then look what happened after. So do we want to just cede this ground to the to become social graphs in, in this. Um, their cred is actually managed by the uh, uh, the Google's uh, Google PageRank algorithm. And uh, that goes back to Larry Page, but actually uh, the person that goes back to the mid 90s, the PageRank algorithm and, and, and Zargam talks about how you can change up the variables and changing the rankings depending on where you put the weighted values. But one of the people who was really involved in actually upgrading the PageRank vac- uh, PageRank evaluation system is Sep Kamvar. And Sep Kamvar went on to run the social computing uh, program at MIT and set up that Wildflower Montessori pre-K with the sensors in the kids' shoes and then go on to co-found Cello, which is the digital beautiful money thing that, that you know, Charles Eisenstein is pitching with him, uh, the, the beautiful version of money. So, um, you know, I would assume the beautiful version of money means that you you have your source cred all lined up for your GitHub job. So, so this is the this is sort of the, the this part of the the thing. So, you know, I've done I've done Geronimo. I've got metagame. I'm going to show a couple uh, clips about that. Um, you know, I haven't found a direct link between Zargam and Arizona State. Maybe he just happens to live in Tempe and. Maybe that just happens to be where Michael Crow is. But there's definitely a lot happening with decision science and military simulating technology and learning, engineering, and social impact finance and um, at Arizona State. And I'm going to go into this a little bit more later because this is a lot. But um, you can just see here, here we have Arizona State University, Michael Crow, who's the president, founding board chair of InQtel. I've talked about that for a bit. Um, the last talk I did... Um, the first talk that I did in Tucson, it was about uh, the world as a game, 
And it was based in part on this ThriveCast program. And I would say uh, this is uh, self-improvement, like lifelong learning with micro-credentials. And it's tied to digital identity and gamification, funded by the National Science Foundation and the Kauffman Foundation. Kauffman Foundation was involved in uh, human capital investing. It's called ThriveCast. Um, I would just ask you folks, um, this is their logo. It's really, really unattractive, in my opinion. Um, it looks like kind of a chubby person with short arms um, and in a circle, like a button dial turning thing. Uh, but I just want you to see what you think about it when you look at it like that. Do you see any similarities? I mean, to me, I feel like this looks very similar. You've got like, this is the head part and this is the arms and the body part. It's more sunken into the thing. And then this is the circle part. And um, you know, it, it, it may, I may be overstating this, but I will just say like in the metagame, they're very much about the octopus uh, visuals. Did I not? Oh, I don't think I put the octopus visuals in here. Okay. They have all of these octopuses. Um, Glenn Weil uh, of the Soulbound Tokens and Microsoft also has octopuses. Um, and to me, I, I feel like there's there's some similarity there. Thrivecast, this game of life program, later turned into what's called Life Lab Studio. Uh, they've moved up. This is the guy, Sasha Barab. Um, look, I mean, if you if you can see the metaverse, right? The the metaverse as the manifest destiny. You know, you've got the guy on the horse going out west. You know, that's exactly the imagery they're talking about. Located in the warmth of the southwest, we take a maverick attitude towards creating new pathways, cybernetics, while valuing the strength of partnerships, public-private partnerships. And uh, this is um, a, a, another scientist who's working on this. And I would say, take note of this um, this logo. It's, it's a flask, and I don't know which one it was. I was terrible in chemistry. Is Erlenmeyer, it's the one that's triangular or conical at the bottom. It has a neck, a long neck, and then it's conical, like a terrarium. And it actually has nature, like a, trees and grass and water, but it's the bottom of the flask is broken and it's flowing out. So I, I feel like, again, just thinking about the symbolism of that and thinking about Cochise stronghold and the, the caverns and the water and the science trying to contain the nature. And is this like an admission that they can't actually contain it or what? Like, um, it just, it feels, it's significant. So they've got Life Lab and what Life Lab is trying to do, it's like a performance measurement optimization program for people of all ages. And they talk about where they play, meaning like their client base, which is in juvenile corrections. That's an impact market. Professional organizations. Again, that's um, corporate corporate world. Faith organizations. Okay, so there, there you've got your church communities and then formal learning institutions. So... That's part of that. And then, you know, it's all about playing on the, on your phone, playing on the phone and getting points. And it's called Journey Do instead of Dow, which is interesting, you think. And it's a triple bottom line. Again, Life Lab, it says triple bottom line studio. We're part of a growing movement towards triple bottom line in which there are multiple drivers beyond returns, social impact, financial return, knowledge generation. And I think the knowledge generation is really is the AI data aggregation in that. And so 
uh, one of the advisors for Life Lab Studios is Tom Vander Ark. Anybody who's been following him in education for the years realizes he's like the guy. <laughs> he uh, was sort of the, the father of online education, first online digital school in the greater Seattle area. He worked for the Gates Foundation. He's a venture capitalist. He's very connected to Arizona State University Global Education Futures. Um, he was working with the folks that bought the top of Powder Mountain for ed, an ed tech retreat. And he he was on the board of Global Education Futures with Pavel Leksha, uh, you know, planning that that future of the people, the people near future. So Vander Ark is has popped up again over in this lifelog planning. And, and just to give you a situation of like where this is, the, uh, the business address, because none of these places have real addresses. It's this guy's house. It's in Scottsdale, which is sort of northeast of Phoenix. Um, and if you if you go to Google Maps, it's actually it's just this like very large home <laughs> with a pool. It looks like he maybe has a I, I don't know, a pen with some animals. It's it's probably like a five acre plot. It's a pretty posh setup that, that they've got there, but it's not an office. None of these places have real offices that they they list as their businesses. Um, so, yeah, there we've got Sasha Barab. Uh, a learning scientist who has published extensively, uh, extensively on innovation and impact and the power of games. And he's a professor in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society um, at Arizona State University. So, and he came from Indiana University before that. Um, and then you can just sort of see, like there's the growth cycle. That's like we're plants, right? Growth means that we have the key performance metrics and optimization, and it's all happening through the phone. Um, and, you know, you've got your journey. Someone plans you a journey, and then you go on it. And they they literally have waves, like you know, it's almost like a boat. Uh, the the a focus on life application because like all we need to do to fix the world's problems is a good app. And then they talk about implementing with your community and facilitating one another through through online interactions. And I would say, I think that this is going to be part of this common fair new version of welfare program is that we're supposed to get online and do mutual aid digital support to people's trauma stories. And they're going to collect all of that data and call it like mental health uh, programming. And, and then you've got the platform um, you know, the connected growth cycle, uh, the components are uh, micro certs. Uh, you, you have a user aware feed. Uh, we support other users by sharing their stories. We have a branded mobile experience, um, real time data to track progress, next generation growth. Uh, members are always up to date with their notifications, multiple cohorts of people and content, uh, external services integrated with API architecture. So like, again, your, your brain, relegate your brain to the smartphone. And that's, that's sort of how it is. Um, so that's Life Lab Studios. And that's um, just sort of backdrop on, again, metagaming, meta source cred, um, oh, and I will say the the other thing. Let me see. Um, uh, um, sorry, uh, SG. So the other thing that I wanted to mention, Giveth. I had talked about Giveth in one of the other. Um, presentations. It's an online blockchain platform with different kinds of token incentives for philanthropic giving. Uh, one of their partners is something called this SDG Impact Fund uh, for 
donors. And it's based in Cartersville, Georgia, which is interesting because there's a lot of indigenous mound building cultures in Cartersville. It's northwest of Atlanta. This, uh, this impact fund is essentially it's a donor advised fund. And I probably should do a read aloud of my write up that I did on donor advised funds, but it's specifically for the sustainable development goals. Um, and they say that they're the only, um, the only uh, DAF uh, donor advised fund whose exclusive charter is to enable the attainment of the goals and is the only uh, DAF in the US that was founded and chaired by an African-American man. So, so you've got that going on. You've got the DEIJ stuff, you have the sustainability stuff. And you know it was interesting because on their website, they actually conveniently put their 990s, which is really nice. But they, they talk about be, becoming qualified to run funds for all these different agencies. And they have sort of, I don't know if it was exactly clients or their clients have their funds in these or these banking institutions, but it includes Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, BNY Mellon, Fidelity, PayPal, Square, HSBC, Northern Trust, Coinbase, Castle Hall, and one UN thing, FSUN. I'm not sure which one that is. Um, but so they seem pretty high profile, right? And um, so they, they show like, oh, we've done all of our due diligence. You know, here we are. It's interesting because their web page is very similar in format to the Learning Economy Foundation interface. Like they use the same template. They just swapped out the pictures. Uh, this gentleman, Tony Suber, is in charge of it with his wife, who's the managing partner. And uh, they are, uh, you know, they're targeting startups and at let's see, they're, they're targeting new startups, established technology, consumer products, manufacturing, and business firms with values of 500,000 to 10 million. So, so they've got this, this investment arm going on in Cartersville. Uh, here's the, the post where they say that they, they're connecting directly with Giveth, um, the, the tokenized philanthropy, and the other partners with this are the Common Stack and the Token Engineering Commons, Panvala and Gaia Giveth. So it's all part of the, the token economy. And then, so I'm just gonna say this is their, these are their 990s. I didn't go through all of them, but for 2020, it had the revenue less expenses, okay? And it has the prior year. So the prior year, which would have been 2019, uh, the, the revenue less expenses was $11,600,000, right? Uh, 2020, it bumped up to 224 million, 420,000 some odd dollars, right? So that's a big jump from 11 to 224, right? That's a big jump from 2019 to 2020. So let's look at, oh shoot, I pulled up the wrong one. The next, I, I oh no, here it is. Okay, so this is 2021s. So you've got the prior year, which is, what I said for 2020, 224 million dollars, 420 and change. It jumps to 9 billion 856 million 113 thousand 291 dollars. Literally, it jumps from 200 something million to 9.8 billion dollars in this fund in Cartersville, Georgia. It's, I mean, to me, it's kind of amazing um, to see that growth. And you know, I'll just go back to uh, 
you know, we had Jeffrey, uh, like the Calvert Investment Fund, right? Uh, the FDIC mission-driven bank. This is where this ESG finance is going, right? This is, and, you know, I, I'm going to say it, at the beginning, I don't think it's going to be like the carbon trading MasterCard wallet. Like for, for affluent people, they're probably going to come up with something that you're going to get some sort of incentive reward systems for a while. Eventually, it'll get punitive, right? Like I don't know how long it will take to get punitive. But the, the easy, the low-hanging fruit on this is going into the opportunity zones, scooping up socially marginalized people, setting themselves up for health improvements, uh, training missions for online education to code the metaverse, to build uh, co-housing with uh, education facilities, to bring in churches, right, to bring in the NGOs, to bring all of the community groups under your wing, right, because, you, because, you know, Crypto is really huge in black and brown communities, right? As some sort of answer to the establishment um, because people don't know the bigger picture and they're gonna scoop all of these people up and they're gonna put them in the online learning platforms and build out their digital profiles. So I think that that's what's coming. So, um, so, so just to say Arizona, and I'll get into this more later, but it's a major center for educational technology, for participatory governance, the tokenization, Using technology in the public interest, that's going to be digital public goods. It's, it's, it's all based in wargaming, in defense contracting, in homeland security. So all of the games are against this backdrop. They're working on engineering, optoelectronics, nanoelectronics. I'll just show you. I, you know, I wandered through these things. Um, ASU is the Sun Devils. That's their mascot. This is the engineering school. I just went up to every level and you know peeked around and saw what was in the lobby. Um, it's interesting to me that the Sun Devil, they're not using a pitchfork, it's actually a trident, and trident is like PSI, psi, like psychology, parapsychology. That If you look up PSI in Wikipedia as the letter, um, there's many, many, many significant elements to what that means. So again, a Sun Devil with, with a triton, with a ne ne Neptune triton. Um, you know, I poked around some of these uh, engineering buildings you know, Arizona State, it was actually pretty nice. I mean, th this is like a kind of a boring building. The landscaping was really lovely. And, um, you know, I was seeing this equipment. They have windows, like what these labs look like. I read about them all the time, this optoelectronics, right? And it, it looks kind of like that, I guess. Um, why someone would want to spend all their time like playing with these tools and to like create a simulation of the world, I don't understand. But you know, this is me wandering around the Arizona State campus looking at their optoelectronics labs. And um, not many people were there. It was like the Friday before exams, you know, looking to see what was on the bulletin boards. This one was the NanoFab facility at Arizona State, a flexible foundry for individuals and companies and universities. So they're talking about all of their equipment. And here's one, the National, uh, the Nanotechnology Collaborative Infrastructure. Um, and I think we're part of, Penn is part of the, the National Nanotechnology Initiative as well. Um, you know, the, in, in their space and earth science division, they had machines that let them model magma and play around with magma, I guess, in outer space and world building. So they can simulate modeling online and then they can play around with pretend, pretend magma. Um, so, uh, so the other thing is, so they were the first sustainability program, Arizona State. So Suzanne, uh, uh, sorry, is it Suzanne? No, Julianne, Julianne Wrigley. Uh, 
she married into the Wrigley family. That's Wrigley's Gum, uh, the Chicago Wrigley's, Wrigley Field. Uh, the patriarch of the Wrigley family who made the fortune, he was Quaker, go figure. Uh, so she decided to give a whole bunch of money to create a sustainability institute at Arizona State. Now she's based in Idaho, I think, like Sun Valley, and she does capital investing. Um, but she gave $50 million to ASU in 2004 to create this first sustainability program. And like I would say also the other thing about ASU is it's funded by the 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 Koch brothers, there's a lot of Koch money in there. And I never could quite understand like why the Koch brothers would be funding sustainability. Only if you understand, like if you, if you swap out sustainability for cybernetic token gamified systems of social control and engineering, then it makes perfect sense. Right. But for most people, they think of sustainability. You say the word and something pops up like green and pleasant, you know, or like cute seals or something like this, or, you know, uh, compost or whatever. You, you don't think about, uh, uh, Holons and complex adaptive systems. So, uh, so I went there. This is Wrigley Hall. You can see the big sustainability sign there. They used to have their Global Futures program where Barab was in that building, but it's since moved to some other location. I think um, it used to be the nursing building, evidently. But no surprise when they remade it in 2009, it was LEED certified. Um, so they've they've reded they rededicated it in 2007 as the Global Institute of Sustainability, and um, I will say across the um, across from it is this big building uh, with the bluish glass that houses the Arizona State University Foundation and the president's office is in there, and you can see a giant silhouette of a sun devil. Only it looks to me more like a minotaur <laughs> in these gauntlety kind of gloves and these sort of pokey, pokey, you know, like a Batman minotaur with these gauntlet gloves. Um, and so I, between these two buildings, which I felt like were a really important anchors, like Michael Crow is such a strong personality in the space due to his ties to all of the like defense tech contracting and and like what he's made Arizona State University into the the basis for this simulation program. Um, I put my my set intention, the heart at the base of this Arizona State University statue. So you can sort of see it here, and um, I have a I have a, a closer up version. I picked up a little plastic wheel um, outside of one of the engineering labs. So there's beautiful there's like beautiful plants, and you know again I was I was there in in November, so it was cold, but you know it, it was Arizona, so I had to wear a sweater. I think everyone was amused at me that I, I was wearing a wool sweater, but um, you can see the aloe. Uh, these I I don't know. The yellow flowers were off of a tree. I don't know, but they're they're these beautiful. I, I'm assuming maybe they make pods, and they're these wrinkled up things. So I don't know if those are maybe date palms, uh, but they were they were on the ground under some palm trees, and you can see the little iridescent shells that Eve sent me from Florida. Um, some little sprinklings of orange, which are marigolds, dried marigold petals that I brought from home, and a few white flowers from a bouquet that Cliff sent, like a little cheer me up bouquet. And um, I picked up the little white flowers are. Alyssum, sweet Alyssum, they were in the bedding plants. And I think that's kind of like my name, Allison Alyssum. So I put that in there. And um, then uh, it's on a piece of palm bark. And then you can see the green pill sock. So that's the green pill, one of the two green pill socks that Jason uh, gave me from Griff Green of the, the common, no, the common stock is Griff Green, like, no, no, it's the, not Griff Green, the Owaki oh, guy, Kevin Owaki of the Green Pill podcast. And they have like little rockets on them. So 
I have the, the shells and then there's one of the last hearts uh, from my friend Sharon's friend. Uh, she hand sewed these hearts. It's got like a little tassel and a green button on it. So you can see sort of the layout of what I put. Um, again, trying to think about setting that intention. Oh, and I have a little Rochester dandelion. You can see one of the last ones left. And then a few dandelion leaves. I found one dandelion on the campus that I picked. So um, that was that was the the thing between um and there we've got michael crow um i'll just play this real quick this is where he's talking about his students being something other than human the human beings that are arriving to us now they're not the same species as you they're homo sapien sapien dot net i mean this in all seriousness they are not the same species as you they have never lived without access to some kind of a virtual supercomputer attached to their body. We have to figure out what that homo sapien sapien dot net is. How does that person learn? How can that person be influenced? How can you communicate with that person? And so the conflicts of the future are all going to have to then realize that there is a huge transformation in human evolution. All right. So, yep. So there he goes. He just says it right there. Um, so Speaking of which, one of the other places I went was the School of Human Evolution and Social Change. <laughs> That's the sign. Um, they're talking about discovering the global human experience. And, uh, you know, I this, this is a, a glass wall on the inside. It says, at the School of Human Evolution and Social Change, scholars in anthropology, global health, environmental, social science, museum studies, and applied math come together to explore the human story. Here we create and share knowledge to inspire our students to foster a healthier, more sustainable world. So again, they're using the math in terms of the evolutionary process. And there's the, the this is the little office. Um, I went in and I talked to the work study students and I'm like, do you actually know what's coming? Do you know what the omega point is in Christogenesis and Talhar Dejradan? And you should look it up because you're actually working in the Office of Human Evolution and Social Change. And the plan is that it's going to keep going towards this convergence point. And they actually were listening to me. Like the young people, actually, it was pretty cool. Like they, the, the secretary was like, she just looked at me like I had three heads. But the, 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 the work study students, they seem to get it. So, and um, it's interesting in this space, they had um, a map of... Uh, looking at uh, climate science around uh, like the Pacific Islands and they were looking specifically at emotion. Like they wanted to map the emotion of the people around sea level change. And it's, and, and this was from one of the posters and it says, why emotion? Emotional geographers argue that emotion is key to understanding how people live in and experience the world around them. Emotion has largely been relegated to the private realm, but is necessary to understand motivi motivations and decision-making. So I think that's what we're dealing with now is the surfacing of all the emotion. Like you're not allowed to have private emotion. The emotion is supposed to be worn outside. It's supposed to be part of your identity that's expressed digitally and worn and shared and used like a flag so that people understand and that it can all be monitored and added to your profile. Um, and then this, there was a big art exhibit, but I was kind of, there was like a curio box with these different scenarios, these little tableaus. And one of them was like, the a, somebody's going to know better than me, but I don't know. There's like a a monk, uh, a Catholic monk with birds and, and a Madonna in a niche. 
and um, and some things going on there in terms of like, again, the code, right? The social code coding. Um, and I wanted to say about the civics thing. So um, one of the other Koch funded, uh, this is K-O-C-H, the Koch brothers, uh, was this School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. And again, they, they frame it as sort of federalist or back to the classics or, you know, the like the traditionalists. Um, but it's not that because ultimately it's all going to go into this tokenomics um, juggernaut. Um, they helped fund the creation of this whole program. It was in 2017. Um, they had a slider on this uh, homepage, but when I did the screenshot, I just happened to collect the one where it's called Civ Ed, a mobile app for civic education, and the young woman is like fully masked. So that's an interesting image of this. Um, and so I went up, it's, it was in this particular uh, mid-rise building, uh, you know, modern building. It took up most of the sixth floor of this building. I think it's maybe Core Hall. And I just walked around and I just wanted to see what it was about. Uh, this is a Washington Post story about it, uh, a disturbing story about the influence of the Koch network in higher education. And they've got Michael Crow standing in front of the building that I just showed you. And, you know, it, it talks about um, uh, the funding of this School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership uh, that, uh, you know, there were. Charles Koch and his brother David are billionaires who have spent their fortune promoting anti-regulation, pro-business views of economics. Um, and yeah, like I'm definitely not a fan of the Koch brothers. Like there are no good billionaires, you know, but at the same time, like it's interesting because they promote one identity, but in re like on the surface, like the branding of what they're saying is one thing, but then if the Koch brothers are giving their money into Arizona State University, I'm sure that they've had numerous meetings with Michael Crow and they actually know what the plan is and that this, the as, as Jason makes fun of me because evidently in that talk, the latest talk in Tucson, I said something about your old timey ideas about the constitution. Like they're promoting the old timey ideas about the constitution without actually explaining to people what the next phase is. So, you know, I'm walking around, this is their uh, old timey library of the constitution. Um, there was like one student in there studying when I went in, you know, they got the, the founding fathers, but then they've got Frederick Douglass up there just to, you know, balance things out. Um, there was a painting that some student did of uh, Aristotle, I guess, uh, the classics they're being taught, but they put in, you know, current personalities. And I, I, I'd like to know who all the people are in this picture. Um, I haven't figured out. They only listed a few of them. And so, I'm, you know, I'm walking through the halls. It's sort of a ghost town. There's a, it's funny, I, I added more images that aren't in here. Um, it, it, this also features the Center for the Future of War. So that's, oh, maybe maybe that's, maybe they're on another one. Here we go. So on the same floor as the civics program is the Center for the Future of War. <laughs> and I've known this, this is an initiative that's very tightly connected to um, New America with Tamika Tillman, who you may have seen in the um, Mormon Transhumanist Association blockchain program, uh, and Anne-Marie Slaughter, and they're all about setting up blockchain identity and global impact finance. Uh, uh, this, you know, a lot of the New America money is funded through Eric Schmidt, uh, Google Alphabet funding behind that. And, you know, there, this is the poster on the hall, the wall that I, you know, took. Uh, when I originally came across the Center for the Future of War, they had three program areas, drones, autonomous weapons, and narrative warfare, definitely into the narrative warfare program. And, you know, they've got a couple of 
professors that I need to look up, uh, Daniel Rothenberg. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when I was in school, I remembered like teachers would make it an effort to decorate their doors, like have cartoons, have different things up, have study abroad or upcoming conferences or things. But when I walked the hall of this, I would say 85% of the bulletin boards looked just like this, like empty, like they never came back after lockdowns. And there was just nothing. It was just, there's there was no personality. There was nothing there. I think this second one, he actually does have a poster like about the, the master's program, but that takes up the whole thing. Like there's not a lot of creativity there. And so I'm, I'm walking around the corner. So I see this, the, the Center for the Future of War. I'm walking around the corner from the, and it's across from this library of the civ- civium, right? And this, this guy comes out of the corner office in this tweed coat. And he's like, can I help you? And I said, well, like, I'm kind of here to see how the sausage gets made. Honestly, I'm from Philadelphia. Like I know about the constitution stuff. Like, um, do you guys ever talk to the people over in the engineering department? Like, do you know what they have planned with these smart contracts? Like, do you, do you know about tokenized government governance? And he, um, you know, he played along, like I give him credit, like he did have a conversation with me, but essentially it was sort of like, well, well, we don't do democracy, we do civics or whatever. And I'm like, well, it's a, it's this, you know, it's the same thing, right? You know, and, and, and he was trying to sort of redirect me like, well, maybe this guy Hurlbut in bioethics would be like, maybe he would be helpful. And I said, but you're doing democracy, right? Like you, you're here because this is what you say you stand for. And yet it's totally being changed in ways beyond most people's imagining and no one's talking about it like how do you and it was sort of like well I'm kind of busy doing all these other things and I'm like no this is the thing like you're the people who say that you believe in democracy so if this is true then you should go across the street to the engineering department and figure out about deontic logic and smart contracts and tokenized governance and and you know he just it just was not sinking in but you know i walked down the hall and then i realized that he 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 it said that he was he was a professor of political science at the us air force academy right and so you know these are the people at the pinnacle who are the most senior people who are just playing roles they're like i'm playing the role of the defender of the democracy only i know i'm not really doing it right i'm not really defending it and I and then I went on down the hall and I could hear in the office there were a couple of grad students talking about like holiday receptions or who which holiday reception had the best snacks. And I figured I could pop in and I'm like, listen, you need to learn about Web3. Like this is the thing. Like you need to learn about digital twins, the moonshot project, cyber physical environments, tokenization. And there was a professor sitting in the chair. Like I'm assuming he was a professor and he, you know, he had a gray beard. So clearly he was a senior guy. And I said, we need to know about this. Like this is a military video game. And he's like, well, I don't really care. I'm just going to be virtuous and I don't care if it's in a military video game. Like I have five kids. What do you want me to do about it? And the, the professor literally got up and left. And you know, these grad students, like they were taking notes, like they're like Japan Moonshot Project, okay, NTT Digital Twin, okay, like they were actually um, taking notes on this, but the people who are in charge, like bailed on the whole program. So anyway, so that's my, like, that's my experience over in in ASU. So it's, it's getting kind of late, guys. Maybe I'll just, because I said that I would play a couple of clips from this, um, uh, future of work. So I'm going to just play a couple. So, hmm. Okay. So I'm going to start with a, a couple here and, and we, we won't do, I'll do like the one minute ones. 
we'll do like a greatest hit. So let's see. So this is Institute for the Future. And this is- We're clearly living in a period of huge transformation, technological, social, economic. And while we can't know exactly what the future holds, that is, we can't predict the future, neither can we assume that today's choices and assumptions will still be relevant tomorrow. For over 40 years now, the Institute for the Future has helped governments, businesses, and nonprofit organizations to make sense of the emerging trends and disruptive forces that are transforming our world. Through various types of techniques, ethnographic research, expert workshops, collaborative online forecasts, and others, we help people anticipate the discontinuities and dilemmas that face us globally and at home so that we can ultimately make better decisions. We create maps that communicate the patterns and connections in complex systems. We also create digital artifacts that immerse us in alternative future scenarios and make them more tangible. And we use massively multiplayer online games that leverage new skills to tackle global problems. With these and many other tools, our mission is to develop the foresight required to reveal the insights that allow for strategic action, both now and in the coming decades of disruption and uncertainty. The Institute for the Future. Practical foresight for a world undergoing rapid change. All right. So, all right. Institute for the Future. So it's important to note that these folks, how do I get? Oh, huh. I'm trying to escape out of here. Okay. Um, that these folks, uh, they actually, uh, the founders help create the Delphi method. <laughs> and the Delphi method, if you've ever been in meetings, um, essentially it's about diffusing conflict and you they already have a predetermined idea of how the meeting's gonna go. Um, so they let people participate within certain limited boundaries uh, but they steer the, the meeting in the direction that it was always going to go already. So the Institute for the Future. Now, it's important. I'm going to the next one I'm going to do is. Um, do, 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 do. Learning on the ledger. And I've, I've, I've played these before, but this one has the EduBlocks and Olive. And what they're talking about is an income sharing agreement. So as you. Like picture this new FDIC impact fund, right? That's managed like on behalf of Microsoft and their planetary computer and their collective impact on children and the various banking and insurance industries that are going to be making the bets and securitizing all of the investments. And this is all thermoeconomics. So they're going to track everything and track what they put into you and what they get out of you, that this all happens on the ledger. And so but but there's a financialization component on the, the upfront investment. So uh, the second part about Olive and what she, what classes she's going to take and if she's going to self-finance or have someone invest in her. And that's an income sharing agreement, which means that essentially she signs a digital contract, and this will probably just be on a phone at some point, that will garnish your wages if certain conditions are met, meaning like you make a certain minimum wage for a certain amount of time, like 10% of your income will be directed to the person who paid for your tuition. And this is a, mat like initially this was coming through Purdue, 
was the, the main, and Purdue is again, the home of the sentient world simulation as well, Purdue Global. But I thought it was going to be really for still regular school and they were going to roll it out as the answer to student loan debt. And it probably still may be branded in some way in relation to the debt forgiveness. But really, it's going to be for these stackable credentials. And I think it's going to be like where she she's talking about signing up for VR digital headset training programs, right? Like that's not going to be from a university. That's going to be from a coding boot camp. So you imagine that these investment pools are going into opportunity zones, like leveling everything, rebuilding mixed use, um, co-living, and that's the whole WeWork stuff that's coming, right? Co-living, co-working, you know, you know, prep for remote work types of environments where they're also investing not only in the hard structure infrastructure of the buildings, but in the people who live in the buildings. So, okay, so listen to this one. Let me move over to full screen out picture. Your ledger account tracks everything you've ever learned in units called EduBlocks. Each EduBlock represents one hour of learning in a particular subject. Anyone can grant EduBlocks to anyone else. You can earn EduBlocks from a formal institution like a school or your workplace. But you can also earn them from individuals or informal groups like a community center or an app. The ledger makes it possible for you to get credit for learning that happens anywhere, even when you're just doing the things you love. Your profile displays all the EduBlocks you've earned. Employers can use this information to offer you a job or a gig that matches your skills. We'll keep track of all the income your skills generate and use that data to provide feedback on your teachers. When you're choosing a teacher in the future, you may wish to choose the teacher whose students are earning the most income. You can also use the ledger to find investors in your education. Since the ledger is already tracking income earned from each EduBlock, you can offer investors a percentage of your future income in exchange for free learning hours. Our smart contracts make these agreements easy to manage and administer. The ledger is built on blockchain, the same technology that powers Bitcoin and other digital currencies. That means every EduBlock that has ever been earned is a permanent part of the growing public record of our collective learning and working. So you're logged into the ledger right now. Tell us what you're doing. So uh, I'm thinking about taking some courses to boost my ledger profile. Mandarin or virtual reality programming. I'm kind of torn. I can make a lot more money doing VR programming, but it's going to cost me a lot more to get my uh, skills up to the level where people are going to hire me. On the other hand, there are a lot of Mandarin translating gigs, uh, even at my current level. And EduBlocks are cheap enough that I could pay for them myself. But I don't even know if it's worth it. The, the jobs don't pay that much, and honestly, virtual reality is my passion. So right now, I'm looking at investor offers. Uh, so here, you have someone who's willing to pay people like me to take a VR programming intensive course. Uh, the deal is, I have to give up 10% of my income for any uh, VR programming that I log into the ledger for the next five years. What do you think? Should I do it? No, don't do it. (laughs) 
escape. Okay. Okay, right. thank you very much. We ask okay. All right. Um well maybe I'll do Okay. So this one so this one is about this is we can track it. So let me see. Is that the one I want to do next? Okay. Let's do we can track it. This is a short one and it's it has it's you, you have to pay it it's hard. I might play it twice because it's only about a minute and a half and it has these analog flippy clocks. And when I talked about the grammar piece, um, it's trying to come up with a grammar for human existence and to like limit everything into its little grammar, right? Noun, verb, object, noun, verb, object. I did this, I did this, I did this. And it's like the, the eyeball, the panopticon eyeball is saying, I see you, I see you, I see you. I'm putting it away, I'm putting it away on your ledger, on your ledger. And so there are these three noun, verb, objects and they flip, but the source material, like so one of the clocks shows where the data is coming from. And then the, the verb is in the middle and then it's what they've accomplished. And so these are the badges and these are all of the things that are tracked in the XAPI technology. So, so let me this part I'm going to read aloud because there's no audio. It's just a visual. It's what's shown on the tags. Red Cross experienced a hurricane. Red Cross responded to Hurricane Irene. Gina Long performed emergency water distribution. Johnny Rogers played America's Army. Johnny Rogers Gmail. <laughs> oh gosh, I can't read all of these. Johnny Rogers checked. He enrolled in boot camp. He went to infantry school. He failed infantry school. He enrolled in military intelligence and mastered that at Fort Huachuca. He was promoted to major, to lieutenant colonel, to colonel, to brigadier general, to general. He negotiated the Libyan Treaty. Jenny Two-Tone read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and answered with the meaning of 47, 46, 45. Jenny connected to Facebook and answered what is the meaning of life with 42. Brian Lee mastered Khan Academy banking, one, two, multiple classes. Mary Turner read The Making of Tropical Disease, A Global History of Malaria. She enrolled in Johns Hopkins. She authored New Ways to Battle Malaria. She completed medical school. She created a malaria vaccine. Learning happens everywhere. We can track it. All right. Did you guys see, see how that works? The learning happens everywhere. And then we can track it, right? So that's that we're in the panopticon. Trying to figure out how to... Oh, I have to get over here, escape. Okay, all right. So maybe I won't play it twice, but you get the hang of it. Um, and then, so this is Mr. Shelley, Shelley Blake Plock, and he's with Yet Analytics. And Yet Analytics uses XAPI to um, track workers. And this is all like for the defense department, for defense simulations, but in the future, this is sort of all of us, so bigger. My name is Shelley Blake Pluck. I'm the CEO of Yet Analytics. Uh, we are a company uh, providing uh, analysis platforms and database platforms uh, for the purpose of um, analyzing and understanding the big data of people, people performance, human capital. Several months ago, uh, the Department of Defense uh, open sourced uh, a specification for experiential data, that is the data of people doing, learning, working within connected environments. A community developed around it, uh, and we were one of the um, uh, we were one of the groups asked to join. 
uh, and we developed a commercial platform uh, based on, on that specification. Back in December, uh, we were invited uh, as a guest of uh, the Department of Defense to present um, work that we were doing in uh, the gathering simulation data uh, from flight simulators and game engines um, at uh, the annual ITSEC uh, military training simulations conference. What we did is demonstrated the ability to uh, draw uh, data um, out of a flight simulator uh, in a, a format that was interoperable uh, with uh, wearable data. That uh, We were collecting biometric data uh, at the same time uh, via Android Wear. Um, so we were able to gather uh, biometric data like heart rate and things like this, uh, movement um, among participants in the simulation while at the same time gathering the uh, simulation data, bringing it together in a uh, unified common format and visualizing it live. That sort of thing, the ability to triangulate different forms of data to help you to identify patterns, trends, behaviors that otherwise might be less intuitive uh, to get at. Uh, that's what we do really well. But the ability to uh, sort of uh, passively make uh, the tracking of uh, human performance and business performance uh, a part of uh, the um, expectation of what it means to to be uh, a worker, to contribute to an organization, to contribute to the success of a business strategy. Um, to be able to have technologies that provide that in a, uh, a passive, behind the scenes, very integrated job embedded format um, that actually shows the real work, the real life of, of what people are doing, that, that's, that, that's the, special, the special offering that XAPI uh, brings to the table. Data collection has been something that sort of uh, happens auxiliary to what you're actually doing in your work. The integration of XAPI, XAPI technologies into the day-to-day -day of uh, all of the operational technology within an organization makes that ability to gather and that ability to an analyze and then make decisions based on what people are doing and how they're performing uh, that makes a lot, a, a lot more special. I'm convinced that there is a way of looking at data architecture itself that is essentially part of, or should be part of, one's business model in entering this new frontier of ubiquitous data. We've built a data architecture that puts its arms around where the world is going rather than go for the easy win right now. Yeah, all right. Well, it seems like at this point, probably everybody's a little tired because it's been a long time that I've been on here. Large, sort of cyber physical. Oh. <laughs> There's Michael Zargum. Maybe we'll just listen to him. This is one, and then then I'll cl I'll wrap it up. So this is him talking about the the cyber physical environment system, which I'll define later, um, which is the whole world. And that world has issues in its own right, and I'm sort of interested in ways that we can use our understanding of systems to change it for the better. Um, so my talk is actually about cybernetics, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, I'm going to use this sort of limited definition where we talk about the domain of social science and economics and the methods from complexity science and systems engineering. It's more than that, but I'm not going to try to explain this whole 
diagram or the several transdisciplinary definitions that exist. But what really matters is that this is sort of a formal science of steering systems and not necessarily in the sense of centralized control, but in the sense of systems that have their own objectives, wants, needs, and they're sort of co-steering each other. It's a sort of critical, sort of semi-formal field that's used to understand the way systems interact with each other came about in the 40s and actually I'll, I'll jump to this slide brief history from way back till recently you have cybernetics is actually um, coined with respect to the Plato's reference about self the study of self-governance in one of his texts the word cybernetic Cybernetique was first used by Ampere to refer to the study of the science of government. And in fact, its contemporary definition is related to the early control systems and economic network theory that was being applied to everything from evolutionary biology to other oh, social and economic regulatory. I'm realizing that I put the wrong thing up. I'm sorry, guys. Let me, uh, you were just looking at me this whole time. This is so dumb. We have like more. We'll come back to this. We'll t we'll come back to this. But um, anyway, thank you for joining me. I, I know that this was probably a lot of different tangents. Um, you know, I did want to just follow up on, you know, the work. Lynn and I did that short, sweet one about school choice vouchers. But I, it can't be, we can't talk about education without understanding understanding the economy. We can't understand the economy until we understand about global systems engineering and post-humanism, right? I mean, Pavel Leksha, that, that this idea of collective consciousness and shared consciousness with machines and AI. And we haven't decided this. Like, none of this has been decided. We, we um, and, and I feel like there are so many of these bigger questions. Like, how, I mean, I guess the AI stuff is bubbling up within the context of like the arts communities or this GPC chat thing, but but I I don't feel like the idea of the impact of the on the economy and the idea of living in a cyber physical environment is living in the panopticon and this idea that a machine could optimize humans it's it it just doesn't. It doesn't seem to me that it's getting the focused discussion that it really should get. So hopefully we can get there. And anyway, um, thanks for joining in. I'm glad that you guys were able to hang out and have some nice, looks like you had some nice sidebar conversations. Um, I'm going to actually be away um, starting Thursday for like a week and a half. I'm not taking my laptop at all. So I, I, I won't be around here for a bit, but I hope... If you guys celebrate, um, you have a lovely holiday and you have a chance to be with families and that the weather doesn't get hitched up too much. I hear it's supposed to be kind of crazy. Um, but I'm best wishes for everybody and happy solstice. And um, mwah, till, uh, till next time. <laughs>